Hello and welcome to Return to Form. You are listening to the third of three festival reports from London Film Festival, which has, as of yesterday, completed, concluded. Uh, there was a finale with some nonsense British film that we're not going to talk about. Um, but Chicken there were some too. other concluding events uh, that I uh, attended uh, and that I did too, um, including a Q&A with Jonathan Glazer and a special Q&A with Pedro Costa and... Victor Ritchie. I've learned Rithe. now to Rithe. say his name properly. Urethra. Yeah, Victor Urethra. Okay. Okay, <laughs> the cool. spirit of Urethra. Wait, it's not even late enough for that. Finish that the joke kind for of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, George has just wandered off set. He's gone um, to have a piss maybe because he talks about um, um, exit, exit host. But hopefully... Uh, but we can, we, can go, we can begin to talk about these films. Uh, Owen, how was your festival? Uh, overall experience. Overall, actually, the overall experience was um, broadly popular. Uh, is it popular? What am I talking about? Broad, broadly good. I think. Um, mm-hmm. I my expectations were a little bit marred by the the conditions of it. So the the, the infrastructure. Um, the but my cat just Amber fourth. Mic. This is why you've got to watch our pod watch our mm. podcast, not listen to it because it's structural film. It's structural film. Yeah. Things happen that we can't control. Yeah, my cat just climbed um, up from the sofa. Uh, yeah, so it, it, you know, I had relatively low expectations. I think partly, like I said, the infrastructure and just the fact that it's in London and it felt, yeah. you know, less, less, I, I suppose, less festive. Um, but the actual programming, I think, turned out to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, so you know, no cap, um, it was good. I think we saw a lot of. Uh, I saw things that surprised me, which is always a good um, outcome of these experiences. I think mm-hmm. when you walk away and think, "Okay, actually, it's it's advanced my 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 envelope of understanding about film a little bit," and I think that's quite a nice thing. And you know, when I w- left Berlin, I couldn't necessarily say that I had a great time, mm-hmm. but I wasn't walking away thinking I've seen something, you know, or several things that were you know uh, momentous. And I think yeah. I have seen momentous things in the last few days. So yeah, how about you? Are you feeling? Yeah, very happy yeah. actually. Um, I've seen about fourteen films, which is slightly mm. less than the normal kind of festival intake. But um, mm. we all, li- as London dwellers, we kind of melded. These but that is still more films than most people probably watch more, in a year at more, the cinema, more, right? Like, far more. Yeah. Everyone else is on their micro and hours. George, how did mm. uh, <laughs> how did you find London Film Festival? Yeah, the same actually. I mean, mm. it, it, it it was as I think we spoke about before a bit a uh, bit diffuse, bit disparate, bit, bit lacking in. Um, you know, big Dollies. festival experiences. Uh, but what was on offer was quite heartening in the end. I mean, we even saw, mm. I saw three English films. Yeah. Yeah. And they weren't they all, were, terrible. They were all terrible. They were all right. Yeah. Oh my God. I saw a good, I saw an English film and I thought that was fine. That was yeah. good. Really good. Actually. Um, so, so speaking of, let's get straight into those, mm. those first three English films, beginning with perhaps the most hotly anticipated film of the festival. Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. A very quick summary before we um, before we cascade into a, into a rigorous analysis of it. Uh, the fourth film of British director Jonathan Glazer, who is famous uh, for having quite a spacious uh, filmography. He doesn't make films very often. He uh, makes a lot makes some of his living making adverts, which uh, allow him to to make. Including Proper the very, films. very notoriously banned flake advert. Oh yes, flake advert. He made the advert yeah. with the dancing um, devil. Made the yeah. advert with the uh, fireworks, the paint bombs exploding in the council estate. Mm. Um, anyway, he he made um, sexy beast uh, and 
birth and under the skin. His fourth film is a attempt to document the Holocaust, specifically from the perspective of Rudolf Hoss, the um, Auschwitz's senior uh, commander. Rudolf Hoss, the boss of the camp. The boss of uh, yeah. yes, Auschwitz, the, yeah. the, the the top mm. the top dog of Auschwitz, um, and his family uh, and their various extended life. Mm. Um, Nineteen it's, it's, children, or whatever they have as well. Mm. Say again. They're nineteen children, or however many. <laughs> yes, huge, huge extended family of jolly Aryan kids running yeah, around. Yeah. Um, you know, it's essentially a film about a workaholic. I think we, we we've said it. It's, 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 it's about his 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 challenge of balancing commitments to <laughs> work, work life balance. He was suffering burnout balance. and he yeah, was yeah. slow quitting. Stick drama yeah. about a workaholic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and John it's Dealman, filmed. But... It's filmed in quite a clinical, flat way on digital, which is unusual for a period drama. Mm, very um, much so. And in the backdrop of all of this you see uh, the billowing smoke of the trains entering Auschwitz and of the smokestacks of the gas chambers. Mm. Um, Owen, were you surprised by this, knowing that there would be a Jonathan Glazer film, knowing that it would be well, about I the Holocaust? Think we've been talking before about thing about Jonathan Glazer, and you, know, you were saying probably is a function of his work as a commercial, predominantly as a commercial director, that he tends to adapt form very easily he adapts himself to form so there's not really a great he knows the brief he knows the brief there's not really a great deal side by side that connects i think there is that connects these films there's a certain sense of humor uh sort of coldness um and artificiality about his films mm -hmm. i think and a strangeness about his films that kind of connect them but they don't you know face to face you know you could show them some on the street and they'd have no idea that they were produced by the same created by the same person and by the same intelligence um, but the film, I mean, the film itself is interesting, right? Because it's it's a Martin Amis novel, which is a zone of interest, um, and it takes what in in for for Amis was um, a slightly more, I suppose, slightly more complicated book in some ways. You know, so Glazer's kind of boiled down the soup until it's something a little bit more rarefied. Um, for Amis, there's multiple protagonists, and there's different. There's and there's also a love narrative. Uh, there's a the, mm. there's a there's a love story, right? Which yeah, is, yeah. There's like there's lots of different characters and lots of perspectives. So it's a bit more of a kind of total historical novel in some senses. Does Glazer just sort of isolate one strand? He isolates Hoss, is, really. But is Hoss the protagonist in the? No, movie? so he he's oh, in place. Okay. He's lightly fictionalized as as some typically stupid Amos title a uh, character title. I find the name now. Yeah, it's like it's, it's so it's it's basically Hoss. I think. And I think uh, Amos researched Hoss's life for that book to identify him. Uh, right. Uh, so he, but whereas in this, he's Glazer's, you know, spent meticulous hours in the archives and has kind of reconstructed Hoss as a kind of uh, cinematic and I suppose literary, post literary figure in a sense. So, and yeah, it is interesting because it is, in theory, a bucolic study of um, bourgeois, because, you know, sort of petty bourgeois. Um, German uh, family life um, in the 1940s as a period drama, but with, like you say, this present absence of the camp and the work that he is obviously doing in the camp and the way it intrudes. I'm sure George will have loads to say about this when we talk about it, but um, when I pass it over, but there, yeah, the presence. And one of the things that I struggle with in this film is um, it, it, it was, I thought it was fantastic. Um, it did struggle with you know this this tension between what it needed to um withhold and what it needed to sort of disclose about auschwitz you know really overdetermined cinematically overdetermined place and just historically as well you know we know what it looks like the only way the only signal at first that we know it's auschwitz is we see one of these very iconic towers 
yeah um, from the train station but we don't see them front on which is how the photo is usually taken you know down the rails we see it kind of we're we're sort of a 90 degree angle to it so we see one of these yeah. houses it's immediately evocative and we know exactly where we are um we know the kind of landscape that we're in um and that this house is abutting it directly so yeah so there's certain interesting decisions by which um glazer keeps Auschwitz at arm's length and yeah. ways he kind of lets it percolate through and it's already percolating because we know it's mm -hmm. right there but there's certain things and sometimes it works really well these little intrusions mm -hmm. and I think the sound mix in, in, in that regard is really good at that um, and other times it was a little bit too flat-footed in terms of how it, it entered the film. There's a sense in which um, any aesthetic uh, dealing with something as vast as the Holocaust needs to take a, a, a distinctive uh, and indirect approach, uh, which Shoah does, uh, and we were thinking about this in our review of Steve McQueen's Occupied City. Uh, George, what, what was your main feeling about the approach in Zone of Interest? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, th I think to maybe wind back a bit and to just consider the, yeah, yeah, the stakes of... Um, uh, narrative fiction making um about about the show in this regard so it is a, it is different from the discussion we had about the mcqueen uh and there are yeah there are a few kind of like obvious touchstones here and i think one of them is obviously the critical response to something like schindler's list um so i mean maybe i could just read this goddard quote it's, of course we always welcome goddard quotes on return to form dearly departed but so he says uh, Schindler's List is a good example of making up reality it's max factor it's color stock described in black and white because labs can't afford to make real black and white Spielberg thinks black and white is more serious than color so he keeps faithful to his system it's phony thinking to him it's not phony I think he's honest to himself but he's not very intelligent so it's a phony result I saw a documentary not a good one but at least you get the real facts about Schindler Spielberg meanwhile used this man and his story and this story in all the Jewish tragedy as if it were a big orchestra to make a stereophonic sound from a simple story. And he, he continues, he continues. Very good. And, can, and apparently uh, in Frederick Raphael's, you know, uh, slightly unreliable uh, biography of Kubrick, he reports Kubrick having uh, made similar remarks about Spielberg's film and also you know, the, uh, when Schindler's List came out, Spielberg had himself, uh, Kubrick had himself been working for three years and kind of meticulous research on what would have been his big Holocaust picture, mm. picture which mm. he then tanked as a result. Uh, and so, I mean, it is a sort of watershed in, in uh, depiction of it as uh, with movie magic and with lights. And yeah, the, pr the prestige, uh, total prestige of that. And of it that is one that has then set the template for lots of subsequent mm. depictions, right? Yeah, which which all these later films have to grapple with to an extent that 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 image of how the Holocaust is treated cinematically has been consumed cinematically. I think exactly, and making it a sort of object for consumption. And so, th thinking about uh, Zone of Interest, which I do think was uh, was it was pretty great uh, in many ways, um, is how successfully it uh, it resists this and how it mm. kind of um, mm. resists the snares of uh, I suppose the the making spectacular of uh of that which you know should not ever really become like mm -hmm. spectacle to be consumed or you know the, or, or what point is there in making something spectacular out of this like as we said afterwards you know um if you're going to directly treat it night and fog is probably the be all and yeah. end all yeah. of that sort yeah. of mode of i think i'm pretty pro shower 
I mean, the film. No, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, as in like, I, no, don't, I, think, I don't think Shower is a direct film. No, because Shower like mediated through people's memory. Oh, okay. So in terms of if you want to do a direct telling then yeah, the narrative then a narrative drama one, about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but I, th- I think there's yeah there's there's a sense in which we can talk about there's certain parallels and i think called landsman's shower is obviously um always a reference point because it's so so comprehensive and indexing of the the aftermath of you know a brutal like um brutal murder you know unrestrained murder but i think um with particularly with this film and with glazer's treatment of it yeah there was a yeah, certain moments where it tipped its hat or it's kind of tipped, showed its hand too much about the thing we knew what was happening. So particularly with the character Hoss, for example, um, we know, we understand what kind of work he's getting up to in a camp, obviously. Um, and I think the film is successful when we see him almost as this Jean Dielman um, kind of character, you know, going about his tasks, his humdrum tasks, dealing with the bureaucracy, dealing with admin, uh, often camp-related admin, sometimes about disciplining members of the SS who were picking flowers from a bush, which I thought was quite a nice. That's um, a beautiful scene. So yeah, he uh, he kind of uh, dictates, as he tends to do in his home office, um, mm. a very angrily worded uh, memo uh, that the, the lilac uh, bushes adjoining his villa are there for the uh, edification of all the members of the SS, but they should not want, mm. want to. Yeah, it could almost be a little bit too sort of uh, overplayed in where it's like you know the, but it's good. It kind of works with this this character who's who's very precise and in some senses he kind of fulfills this image of the, um, partly fulfills this image of this Eichmannian style um, sort of precise clipped functionary, um, for whom this is not a passion. This is a you know just work just has done. like job satisfaction and, and pride in, in what yeah exactly yeah. so and yeah and in one of know, the q and a's i'm not sure if it was the one that you saw i mean i watched a few of them mm. online but uh um glazer sort of says that he was reading about hoss and he was like uh he read the in the, the nuremberg interviews that happened you know mm. with all of the incarcerated nazis before they uh, got hung or took their capsules um the, there was a French psychoanalyst who went to go and meet him multiple times. And the, the, the kind of uh, uh, impression that this guy formed of Hoss was that he was a sort of flower collecting, um, you mm. know, milk toast. Uh, and at that point, Glazer instantly thought of uh, Christian Friedel, who's the actor who portrays him. Yeah, who, who does an amazing job. And is actually very well. Yeah, I mean, he looks quite crazy. similar to the real Hoss, Hoss actually. Yeah, I think you saw the photo. Of the I did. He's so. a relatively young man. But the interesting thing about Hoss is there's another psychologist. I know we're not, this isn't a podcast about, you know, Hoss, but I think it's True kind of crime. interesting in terms of the True various war crimes. Two war crimes, the, the, the various similitudes that this film kind of is toying with. And I think it's important to grasp what he's doing there. And I think Hoss, um, uh, there's another sort of psychoanalyst treatment of him. Uh, who who's pretty clear that he is a you know was displaying quite psychopathic tendencies you know a real a real indifference and un- lack of understanding of the crimes he'd done and lack of remorse. Um, yeah. But the so with this Hoss character, we do see there are times when we see him within the world of the camp, and again, kind of indirectly. But at that point, it's kind of you may as well just show the whole hog because um, you know we see a scene where it's kind of a very brief scene, and we see him in his with his army officer's cap on. And there's uh, screaming and sounds around him, and it's kind of a Dutch angle. And we're looking up at him, you know, and he's we can see smoke around him. So he's obviously in the camp doing the killing. This felt like almost music video in a way, mm. and I think it actually did come closest to 
the thing that the film tells you it won't do, which is yeah. to kind of Show like, sensationalize what's mm. happening. Um, but I think it was it was a misstep. I mean, there are like very odd. I just want to give a shout out mm. to like these very odd infrared but monochrome sequences that are where the Mika Levy soundtrack comes strongly, most strongly to the fore. So you know yeah, these yeah. are a function also of one of the constraints that the film is imposing on itself, which is mm. uh, no uh, unnatural light. Mm. Uh, interesting, interesting. Because they're the exterior shots, which are not uh, daylight, are not uh, um, uh, domestic, kind of, you know. They're, they're, it's available light, most of those. Really. Um, yeah. They had to think about how to do them because they wanted to include these. And also, the, if that is, yeah, that is when we have the Mika Levy. Um, mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the film starts actually with like a minute, a minute and a half of like some kind of overture by by, by Mika Levy. It it does have this. Uh, but her really, music, if you think about it, doesn't come in at any of the other points. Uh, and mm. instead, we have just the sound design of the, the the sound designer. I can't remember his name, but he's worked with him on. You know, oh, different yeah, different person. It's it's not Mika Levy. So they're working to, together. Because they're two. Yeah, they're two separate basically yeah, sides yeah. of the. Because ambiently, the the sound mix for most of the film is this almost perpetual constant rumbling clattering gunshots and screaming but and it was done like, afterwards pardon it was i mean it was obviously it was dubbed in afterwards but like yeah, the point course, is yeah. the actors uh are portraying these kind of seeming indifference to the noises they're hearing yeah. Yeah. is an actual indifference because they can't really hear they it, can't hear yeah. it. Yeah, yeah 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 i mean i wonder if they'll give direction on that like you know no apparently but, not apparently the, the idea was to sustain this state of uh of kind of abject indifference on set yeah. and then apparently they did one cut and it sounded too pastoral by half because you could hear all the they'd researched all the noises of the rivers and the rustling in the trees and all the flora and fauna that you'd have around Auschwitz and then they kind of dimmed down the actuality of what uh what the well, noises of li uh, listening to uh, joining a concentration camp would be like uh and um so the notes on that screening was you made it sound like a country park or something like this and so then mm. And if anything, I think there was a bit of an overcompensation the other way around. I think you agreed yeah. with this, Owen, that maybe there were points at which... Uh... It intruded too much. So there's a scene where the young son is playing in his room with his toys or whatever, and he overhears um, his father. Uh, there's, a, there's an altercation with the guard, and I think they, just, they find uh, two of the um, prisoners in the camp uh, fighting, or one of them stole an apple or something, and he orders him to be drowned in the river and it's clearly Hoss because they call mm. out his name you know commandant or whatever and the son hears this and the son's kind of like yeah you know you shouldn't steal or something and he kind of reacts mm. to it responds to it and without understanding the gravity of what's happening I suppose but you know it, if we if we can hear it in this moment we should be able to hear it all the time um, and this is the one moment where Glazer allows very clearly this child to hear over here this conversation for sentiment i think not sentimental for i guess sensational sensational effect because we go oh wow you know the child's overhearing his dad ordering someone to be killed you know I mean, I it, suppose it kind it of broke the 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 kayfabe of i suppose really what what he'd so carefully established until that point which was this rumbling incoherent inchoate horror that we were kind of guessing right, because very possibly. often it sounds like basically if you've ever lived in a flat which adjoins mm. uh you know like a tubes mm. right yeah. uh, and that that is i mean that's the really uncanny state that it manages to mm. perpetuate is that like urban the, buzz uh, basically or, or living next to like magneto gorse or next you know in port port, port albert when the yeah, factories yeah, are in industry i mean it, it really really gives this uh abstraction of like what is you know 
what is daddy up to? Like they're all, mm. not, nobody in that, nobody in the domestic environment is prepared to ask the question mm. of like, what, what, uh, what's his work? I, I think this know? bit worked quite well for me. I, 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 I think, but I think it is like a sliding scale to an extent mm. of what, mm. um, you know, like how, how far, how, how extreme the device is, right? Because mm. I think that, mm. you know, like, I mean, yeah, at its best, it sort of almost feels like watching the, the Big Brother live stream, you know, at like 2 a.m., you know, back when Channel 4 used to just like stream bits from the house, you know, these and just these angles that a bit like CCTV kind of instead of instead of going from like a wide to a close up, it just goes from a wide room to another to wide room to room. You know, as they, people walk they through, shot with yeah. 10 cameras. Right, kind of fixed station. Yeah, fixed station cameras. That so, makes a lot of sense. That's what they yeah. built from, they basically yeah. repurposed from scratch because the original house that Hoss mm -hmm. lived in was still yeah. there, but they couldn't, they, they, it wasn't It wasn't practical to evict the Polish family that actually lives in this building. I heard a slightly different story, which is that it was fine, but they were not, um, it wouldn't work from a production perspective. It wasn't so much that they, I think it was completely possible for them to do it, but they decided it would be easier to, find a house about three lots up which looked vaguely similar and they recreated it the entire thing and had right. this garden which they planted meticulously and but they still had the Auschwitz in the background it wasn't far enough away that it didn't uh yeah but the wall is not no so i think there's a little bit of uh trickery so they built this wall that's not the okay. wall of Auschwitz okay. it's one they constructed i mean but all I, I the think. kind of the the series of buildings i think that I, must, I that believe can't, that can't have been so. built from scratch my eye was wandering over them trying to work out if there was a bit of it does have this strange like it sort of um it almost like a blue velvet picket fence like it has this mm. real sort of like uh like homeliness like mm. even though it doesn't it's not like my taste as a home but it has this like traditional homely and when you see them like putting out the potato salads i mean the mise-en-scene is like mm. some of the most impressive and actually that's something that all of glazer's films have like a very deliberate purposeful mise-en-scene yeah. and there was um, a bit of a dis there was a bit of a taste in my mouth when i learned about the rebuilding because i mean there is also a god i mean he was always talking about uh schindler's list it was evidently a film that made like quite a big impression on goddard in some fashion but he he did say once like it's not going to be enough for them to just keep making films about it one day they're going to rebuild the camps you know for the purposes <laughs> of right, okay yeah for, yeah. for total various to right? and what um second as fast there are many like many sides of this film that i think have a like a really commendable uh uh consistency and um mm. austerity to them in the sense that like maybe four or five aesthetics decisions are made and then they are pursued consistently throughout uh I, the film right without without kind of falling privy to the like whim of just exploring things for their own sake it um, very much felt like you know very often when we see a prestige period piece like the killers of the flat moon mm. i often when we often come away from these things thinking good it would have been so much better if they'd like shot it all in digital on still or like with like some kind of formal device right mm. um and i think when people like ask what we mean by form i guess uh and like when we talk about form and content having a relationship that is um like di dichotomous or like you know antagonistic uh, or connect or linked or connected uh this is what we mean i mean when you're dealing with subject matter when you're forced to deal with like subject matter that is is mm. loaded heavy emotional yeah. uh historically massive um you know you do have to make decisions like this and i, I think um i think that's and they're more compelling because exactly. you know you compare it against you know not even shinders this but more in the same weight class from like son of saul 
um, which yeah, led that's into the, this that's very, you know, kind of uh, of over the shoulder, yeah, kind yeah. of very intimate and up close and embodied and very gory and very, um, you know, Alexei Gomez. The kind of toolbox for the immediacy effects were missing, mm. which was actually what was so impressive. I mean, like yeah. very, very few close-ups apart from the one that we've already remarked upon inside. Yeah, the... which we thought was maybe a misstep anyway. But yeah, for the most part, we're, we're, we're in mediums, we're in wides, we're in these kind of like quite hokey... Uh, he's quite hokey dolly shots in the garden, you know, where he's wheeling the wheelbarrow and the camera just kind of follows him along. And it's this yeah, and this, this tracking shot order. as well is like a bit mm. controversial because there was this whole discussion about uh, that Capo was one of the first films made. I, I think Bradshaw even spoke about this, but there was this mm. big discussion in Cahir about uh, this film Capo by Ponte Vicero, the guy who did uh, Battle Battle of Algiers. Oh, Ponte, Ponte Corvo. Ponte Corvo, yeah. So, I mean, that was one of the first, um, you know, big uh, spectacular uh holocaust films and that uh ignit this response within kahir about the tracking shot which was this kind of great spectacular um feat of movie magic uh, designed to kind of suture you onto the experience of the mm. ema um onto the train literally in some sense yeah you well, i think that's appropriate i mean there's great cr- tracking shots in um in show i think the tracking shot is i love tra- yeah. tracking shots we're great, just yeah. very pro tracking shots yeah, uh, yeah. one thing, yeah, I, one I thing I... in in this in this uh all of the garden scenes in this film were um were amazingly staged i mean they were like yeah uh the, the use just made of this one little bit of set was quite beautiful because you saw the kind of um insane rationalist logic that was kind of mm. uh put in at her end at his wife's end to, into the maintenance of this um and the segmentation of all the different flowers and everything else you know mm. so what's happening on one side of the wall is just being enacted on the other side Let's just mm. um, leave the house for a second because there is there is a sort of third act to the film where the, prota- the, where the protagonist yeah. finds himself. Before in we Berlin. get to that, can I just so yeah. there's there's a, there's a couple of things I want to say about the the kind of the I suppose the bucolic or pastoral edge beyond the garden, the sort of wilderness beyond the on beyond the kind of refined ordered garden, which are these kind of more natural spaces, which mm. have become a kind of say the word slightly liminal space or a kind of interaction space between. The, the ordered murder of the camp and the all good ordered sort of um growth of the garden um you know between like the raw and the cooks you know sometimes we talk about levi strauss but and i think this the the river which they sometimes play out and swim in becomes a place where these two worlds kind of interface in interesting ways so amazing um, scene yeah, yeah. yeah when they're in the he's in the river with his daughters swimming and something flows down this kind of brown brackish stuff and he's seized with enormous panic and kind of hires his daughters out of the out of the river and it's implied uh, who knows what it is blood bones body they're water. cleaning themselves and he is the most forensic of course in cleaning his hands because he's the one privy mm. to them he knows what it was yeah it's presumably body yeah. parts or something so there's these quite amazing scenes where this this the river becomes this place where these things are a little bit more wild and they kind of interact with each other and that's the same space where we see these these infrared night shots of this young polish yeah. um girl uh leaving food out at the work sites uh, mm-hmm. for the forced laborers, she's like leaving potatoes, and we see these scenes in this kind of amazing harmony Korean style, almost kind of infrared. Well, we haven't seen Agro Drift yet, yeah, but, but, no, no, assume... but we know it's gonna. It's, it's Richard Moss, right? Like, it's a photographer. Yeah, it's Richard Moss. It's also that amazing young father's video, uh, music videos will show. Well, infrared, Richard Moss incredible. does it with very rich reds, whereas this was in mm-hmm. monochrome. Just... No, because he he. No, no, he did those works at the Belkin in, in the night vision that is used. Yeah. Oh, okay. The red is a particular type of Kodak, Kodak, like Kodak stock that pulls out the advances the reds which was used for military applications in right. vietnam but yeah um but yeah there's so i just think that that this river space is quite an interesting place and it's where they have him and his wife actually have quite a 
I suppose the only moment where they they have a sort of actual conversation beyond the functional and where they really talk and apparently uh, verbatim, open up. Uh, it comes Over. it comes from some um, housekeepers over having overheard it. Uh, wow, that's wow. Insane. it's a great conversation. Yeah. This is one of my favorite moments. Actually, my favorite banality of evil moments, where mm. she sort of says, "I'm l- I, like it's when he he announces that he's going to have to move to Berlin." Uh, mm. uh, uh, and and that they're gonna all, all gonna have to move, and she protests. She says, "I want to us to, uh, you know, we'll stay here, hold the fort. You know, it's a beautiful house. We live so we, we live such a wonderful life. Just as the Fuhrer wants us to, I have everything I want here. You know, and it mm. it's a it is a very These effective. These Lebanese settlers in the east. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very extreme, but it's a very um, uh, it's a very effective moment of irony because obviously, mm. you know, we watch it, uh, and we we can't ignore the the horrors that are happening yeah. in the background, and they are always." Except in this annoying shot that we keep coming back to, they are always in the background. Can we? You can we just the third just act. cover the third act? We can't. I mean, we this this is uh, the, probably the most important film to talk about, but mm. um, we, we can't go on as long as we did a lot at the last episode. Um, but the third act, he goes to Berlin. There are somewhat downfall like uh, kind of uh, par- uh, parades and cascades of Nazis all dressed up, um, uh, period appropriately. Uh, Jonathan th- Ganzer. Yeah, I think get, it, yeah, get, get <laughs> I think it somewhat yeah. loses its footing, but I was well, I wasn't lost in this moment. Uh, and I think the final ending where we where we jump ahead to present day Auschwitz being sort of cleaned uh, mm. um, by you know by the people who clean Auschwitz now, mm. uh, and then cutting back to this this kind of uh, increasingly unwell uh, Rudolf Hoss. I thought this cutting back, which it, had it not cut back, would have been a kind of fatal and, and right. very. And I think what the sequence there. I've been this thinking cutting about cutting back was very beautiful um, for a few days. And I think what it did successfully is it draws out the aestheticization of the contemporary kind of spectacle of mm. um, the museumification of, of this yeah, space. Of, of, yeah. of space. Um, and so what we see is that we, we see cleaners kind of um, uh, like printing it up ahead of the. Uh, the various exhibit spaces in the chambers before people uh, arrive and you see how actually the, the the forms of display sort of resemble a lot of contemporary art it looks like a christian boltanski exhibit well, or and some kiefer probably quite or kiefer, or, yeah exactly some of things it's kind yeah. of um, this actual like uh verging into hollywood uh kind of holocaust kitsch in a sense yeah I, then, I i i actually I, at first I was, I was a bit I was less less kind to that 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 scene or that inter- interplay of scenes, but I think I yeah it's kind of grown on me that that treatment. I didn't I don't think it's as I was really initially I was quite disappointed that he'd used that, but I think you're right. This sandwiching it between Hoss, he's walking down the stairs of this this large grand office block in um, Berlin, and he vomits, and then we switch this scene. Look down and, this corridor, and then we look yeah. down the corridor with him, and then we're we're in contemporary Auschwitz, and then we yeah. Back then we go back and he vomits and again, again it, and walks on and i think it's that's very glazer because he loves a bit he loves abysses he loves really mm. he loves really obvious devices that actually do work he loves this kind of mm. looking down into the abyss mm. and then and then you're in this kind of banal version like well, this, yeah think about I the mean, end of sexy beast when we go underneath the swimming pool and we <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We, we, we discover the kind of well, under the skin as well is full of abysses and then well, literally it, yeah. it's got these and he likes yeah. a passage or a tunnel and i think sometimes he's literal and i think sometimes they're they're, they're kind of figurative like the beginning of the film like we said is this this aura this sorry 
oral tunnel of, of noise of music and this blackness before we suddenly burst out mm -hmm. into this red it's quite audacious it's maybe like two minutes three minutes or something right yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. but i think um but yeah I, I thought his vomiting was really interesting and it's it's suitably ambiguous you know because he sees a doctor in the film we think he does have he, health problems he's he has, not necessarily just responding mm, to the horrors that he's enacting but it could Although be maybe this, it's there is. that kind of reading you know there's yeah. these sublimated disgust and objection of what he's doing there's part of him that's aware of it and i think it's, it's suitably ambiguous which i thought we see various other traumatic kind of symptoms like when the kids mm. is sleepwalking uh, mm. uh and the you know uh the babysitter the, or the like live in the um, mother the, the mother comes to visit and disappears yeah but i was thinking yeah, more of yeah. the um the child uh uh, the, the babysitter who lives upstairs and she kind of can't stop hitting the bottle while she's looking at the at the furnaces i think but, that's uh so i was more confused about this. so one of the things is that that, that it, it, it certain workers in the house are um fr jews from the camp um and we know this only because the wife says a remark to one of them mm -hmm. she says my husband could scatter your ashes in the fields if you know because she's <sighs> the girl's like doesn't clean something up in time and yeah. it's like i was like it's kind of interesting with that scene because it felt like I knew by that point that these were forced laborers in the house or assumed mm -hmm. they must have been. And I was like, again, it's one of those inter interesting kind of, I guess, narrative decisions for someone like Leia. She's like, do I ha have the wife say or someone say it? So it's, you know, absolutely yeah, unambiguous yeah. that that's why they're there. But I enjoyed the ambiguity up until that point of, well, not enjoyed, but, you know, respected the ambiguity up until that point of not definitively knowing uh, their status in the household. So when you see them looking stressed and shaking a bit you kind of mm. again it, it's you kind of read into it and it gives you a bit more it gives you a it treats your audience with a little bit more intelligence to probe that yeah and i, th I think, think basically the film struck apart from a few exceptions <laughs> struck the <laughs> struck the balance that it was mm. very boldly and very admirably attempted to strike mm. um it was between, so good. between was so showing good. and not showing and, yeah. and you know I, I this is a sort of film that I, while we've expressed our, our nuanced scruples here this is a film that i am absolutely already mm. uh proselytizing about to people i know who don't see films that often yeah yeah go and see this um, go and see because this. it is um, it's it's a it's a bold work and um and it's a surprising work mm. uh, and it has a surprising effect um and yeah, weird think, effect and i think we need to support this being done Mm. Where, wherever wherever it is being done um mm. yeah yeah further thoughts are we are we complete zone of interest uh, uh very interesting mm. from one <laughs> uh british <laughs> film to another there's really no segue uh to make between zone of interest and molly manning walker's debut how to have sex so i won't make a segue don't i'm just try. gonna start <laughs> i'm just gonna start <laughs> talking about it um molly manning walker uh is was for us for a time a a very prolific cinematographer uh and began making short films i believe in the last um last couple of years um and this is her feature debut it is uh was quite a surprise for both me and George, who saw it at the festival. Um, I'll give a quick summary of the plot. Uh, it's called How to Have Sex. It's about a trio of young English girls who make uh, one of these visits to Southern Europe that uh, people who've just completed their exams often make uh, to Malia, in this case, uh, to party and drink and, and have sex, is what they're hoping to do. Mm. Um, the most the focal point of this trio is Tara, 
the main character who is uh, is on the on the on the poster. Uh, she is a virgin and is sort of uncomfortable about this and sort of hoping to make a um, make a splash in this uh, these various pool parties. The first night they all go out together, but they don't really fraternize with anyone else and they get kind of hideously smashed. Uh, and then in the morning they befriend this group of people on a on a chalet just uh, opposite, and uh, including uh, two. Well, there's a there's a lesbian called Paige who befriends the sort of the other the lesbian in their group, and then the, these two um, two chaps. Badger, a kind of uh, sort of hev- somewhat tattooed Geordie lad, uh, and his mate Paddy, Paddy who's Badger. slightly more normal looking. Mm. Um, but they're all kind of sesh heads. Uh, they're all likely lads. They're all cheeky chaps. Uh, and uh, they all go out together. Uh, they get up to some pretty, um, pretty, pretty shocking kind of... Uh, I didn't really Is know. Is it basically spring, English spring breakers? Yeah, it's say, like sort of Malaga, yeah. Mar- Marbella spring breakers. There's a kind of crazy well, I mean, scene. We, we said, we, I turned to you in, like, within the first minutes, it's like, mom, can we have spring breakers? It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it actually, I mean, there are lots of like, it's kind of in between his movies-esque in the first half. And then in the second half, as Kevin and Perry go large, if you're going to be yeah, listening, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> for the, pure, old, for the, the older listeners, yeah. <laughs> and the purists um, before yeah. my time. But uh, um, but yes, as you can, you as you can generally predict from the first half, which is very kind of jubilant and frivolous, mm. there is something um, something lurking, something quite dark ahead. Uh, Tara goes off piste, breaks away from the group, um, has a uh, deal. She she loses her virginity to this this guy Paddy. It's, you know, they're both a bit drunk. It's sort of, uh, it's not the best, most romantic moment, but, you know, they, it's it's consensual and they, mm. uh, they, 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 they have it. And then uh, later on, uh, she kind of goes, goes missing. Everyone's worries about her. When she returns, uh, she gets sort of not very much kind of attention from Paddy. He seems to already have moved on, not be very interested in her. Uh, and then... Um, and then, yeah, something something very uh, unpleasant happens between them. Uh, in the following day, uh, and there's this extraordinary scene. A lot of this shot is shot in kind of single takes, um, but there's ex- this extraordinary scene where she is absolutely shattered, wanting to get some sleep, and Paddy kind of slides into her room and uh, begins to kind of make for her, while her friends are kind of calling... Her friends who are all sort of egging her on. Oh, yeah. Um, her friends, her, one of her friends sort of calls and asks if she's okay and like tries to check on her. Meanwhile, he's kind of uh, like an octopus kind of grasping around her. Um, it's very sort of suspenseful and painful and ultimately heartbreaking film uh, made mostly with very admirable restraint. Um, and yeah, I liked it quite a lot. George, what was your impression? Yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, as we spoke about afterward, I think it was, um, I mean, it's not hard to have uh, a pretty exciting depiction of, like, the early stage of yeah. of yeah. Uh, the gals, the gal dem on holiday, um, and everyone jubilant and, like, wasted over kebabs and, like, oh, we've got to get her back to the hotel. I love you, babe. Like, this, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so you're, you're with it for the first 30 minutes, sort of, uh, I think, irrespective of who the director is or really what the cinematic chops were. Because also, I mean, it's, it's, we haven't spoken about it, but it was buttressed by this great kind of UK EDM soundtracks. We had yeah. Disclosure. Yeah. We had Hudmo. We had, like... Jack Warb was the supervisor on... Uh, uh, oh, really? Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and uh, and the, the kind of make or break point does become, when you remember that this is an English film, um, the, the slide into a different tonal register, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 it could be so frequently mishandled, especially given the, or like, uh, not mishandled, just kind of, um, and this is the point at which everything becomes overdetermining yeah. and mm -hmm. whatever looseness, looseness or kind of, uh, um, uh, yeah, formal plasticity there is kind of goes away. But instead, for instance, we go to the moment when Tara, the, uh, the central girl, disappears. That, that like this amazing void opens up in the film, um, yeah. which is sustained. Uh, and you, the, the way that she kind of emotionally calibrates the different reactions of the different members of her uh, group is really very fine tuned because you see that like, the girl who's meant to be her closest friend is hoping that the absence of Tara will give her an opportunity to move in on this this other lad that they've met, whereas mm. he and and the rest of their party are like already concerned, mm. Um, mm. and there just enough space is left left for us to kind of really speculate on um, the like severity of what could have happened, and we re, you know everything we 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 sort of instinctively replay the first half of the movie in yeah. our uh, in our minds, so we. We, we, we then go through exactly the same process that all the others are going through of trying to reconstruct the night, you know? Yeah. And of course, yeah. we've, we've only at that point seen partial, partial instances of it. I think a misstep was that it actually then showed us mm. uh, uh, replay. Yes, although for the, for, the, for the narrative with Paddy, we sort of had to see that they... We had to see parts, but I think... She then has this whole adventure with these other people who never reappear who aren't very important she just kind of yeah. finds another crowd of people who aren't sort of bad or good they just they're quite nice to her and then she but she doesn't have a phone so she just right. ends up getting back late mm. Anything echo... what the the strip i guess in malia and by the way yeah. the, the segue we could have gone for with uh zone of interest malia was you know under occupation by the nazis so you know there is every, was almost everywhere was there it like feels Jersey. like some of the uh, places we, you know, it seems to echo some of the critique we had of a film like After Sun, which showed us too much. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say this was something that bothers me at, at all when we were watching. It's just something that's coming up now that we're speaking about it. But we have this amazing shot down the strip, really uh, into the vanishing point, uh, where you're know, like uh, ballasted on both sides by kebab shops and all the rest of it. And you see this sort of wreckage of like whatever it is, kind of 6 a.m. And it and looks mountains like, in the back in the background. Yeah, it looks like a loser or something. It looks it looks yeah. like a disaster zone. And then mm -hmm. uh, we we cut back. We we see um, uh, the antics of her night before when she's gone AWOL, and then we see her returning down this um, mm -hmm. same strip, like uh, completely you know completely desolate, abandoned, no phone in her mm -hmm. body, can't dress and crying. And um, wow. Uh, and it's yeah, it's it's very well handled, I think. Um, Almost reminiscent of Ulrich Seidel, actually. That sort of sprung to mind at various points. Like oh, so kind he, of, his his film's about sort of love and and commerce and travel, yeah, like yeah. an unsqueamish sort of approach mm. to a quite extreme paradise love. Yeah, in his films, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, and I thought it was like visually very self-assured and confident of itself. The mm. way that the this final uh, confession scene and the duty free, which I won't spoil, is 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 is, is blocked and is shot. It's, it's just really really magnificent i think uh, a lot of extraordinary moments of blocking um mm. one one massive reservation which i think uh we can kind of talk about in 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 depth as a group 
uh, is the use of what we're now going to call Foley dips, yes. which is a moment in a film where the general atmos is kind of turned down or potentially a kind of EQ is put on it such that it sounds very heavy. And it raw. filters out certain, like exactly. the, the, the kind of fullness. The, of the general sound. fullness yeah, of the yeah, sound, yeah. the higher, higher, higher tones, frequencies. And you start to hear the, f the individual Foley of particular actions, maybe the touching of, of hands uh, or, or kind of the opening of a bottle or something that one of the characters notices. You might even have a close-up of this. Uh, and everything in the sound design and the mise-en-scene and, and, and the camera work kind of focuses in on what the character is thinking as or, or focuses in on what the character is looking at as a way of like gesturing. This happened in Horde so much and it was a big part of, as a methodology, it was a big part of why I hated Horde. Um, <laughs> but it, but in, in How to Have Sex, it's actually, it happens quite a lot, but it doesn't, it sort of just feels like aberrant from the, the general approach of How to Have Sex cinematographically, which I thought was wonderful. Um, but uh, but yeah, this this technique and and actually, I mean, in our Christian Petzold podcast, we talk about how this happens in Yella. Like he ex like Petzold oh. experiments with someone breaking a biro or something, and suddenly the sound goes down, and you can. It just seems completely anathema to what cinema should do. Which I'm honest, I think it's a technique things. which has been imported into art house filmmaking from commercial filmmaking, right? Mm. Like it, it's, it's it's sort of Guy Ritchie almost, like kind of thriller. Yeah, also also from this, but it feels like um, it's the it's more familiar to like the beer advert or something when they're like yeah this whooshing well, it's, noise it's, it's a classic you hear, clink, you hear the clink of the bottle yeah, and then the yeah, whoosh yeah. back out and then the the party comes yeah forward. there's certain ways it's doing it. it 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 basically is condensing sort of it's it, i suppose it's a a backdoor into interiority for these characters yeah. because it shows us what they're they're focused on or what they're losing focus yeah. about i think it's it can and be a little bit lazy short circuit to it that doesn't mm. actually accomplish no, it doesn't really help us there and i think the problem is i think it's it's often accompanied so there's the foley dip and it's often mm -hmm. accompanied with the snapback so we'll sometimes <laughs> get and we'll get and it'll often be accompanied with a cut you know it might be like someone's fully focusing and then we get a slam and they're like getting back in the car and they've just shut the yeah. car door. We'll get these kind of things and they're quite forced. And they, like you said, they seem to own a lot, earn a, that, owe a lot to commercial filmmaking, mm -hmm. but also, I suppose, to Netflix dramas and sort of, you know, BBC drama. It's in this kind of quite pedestrian, milk toast style of filmmaking, which kind of makes up for, you know, nuance elsewhere by creating these moments, these kind of sharp peaks of focus. And I think I've and really I've never aren't, ever you seen know, it cheat well, code to truthiness in filmmaking i mean no. you can't you, you can't just liberally uh apply this and, and yeah and hope it's not sufficiently ambiguous but what was annoying about how to have sex is that it had essentially already was already succeeding mm -hmm. in uh, depicting um particularly at the, the moments when it was most uh insistent upon the foley dip so when it was trying to uh, show us, um, you know, the level of kind of isolation and alienation this girl was feeling both from her peer group and from the like um, uh, situation she finds herself in whilst on holiday in Malia, right? And here it was kind of instructive to compare it with something like Spring Breakers, where mm -hmm. you have this sustained impasto audio soundtrack of um, of like EDM, right? Of hype, mm -hmm. hype, trashy um EDM throughout the entire thing without any need to uh, uh, hollow it out in this fashion or do these mm. kind of like um, yeah tunnel, the wall of sound really approach which is, is, is Lynch, something Lynch has kind of perfected as well with Twin Peaks in particular and actually you know a lot of his a lot of his um, filmmaking which is this kind of perpetual din 
Um, and this, this quite confected sound, which actually becomes a character in its own right when it's sustained throughout the film. I actually think the source as well for this is probably going to be Spielberg and, 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 and really Scott uh, in their own ways in a slightly more elevated way because, you know, Saving Private Ryan introduced that in a big way, this this loss of hearing that then snaps back. Right. Well, it goes on an interesting journey, right? I mean, it comes come from and Come and See. Come and See, yeah. So it's kind of gone. It's kind of horseshoe. It's kind of horseshoe almost. It's or not. It's just kind of come I mean, back. Come to and see does it in a beautifully literal way because mm. it's literally trying to convey Over, the, the experience of tinnitus yeah. uh, in the in war, um, mm. and and in a way, and you can also maybe like maybe it's more appropriate to use it in war than it is in like a nightclub. I don't know. Like there's like certain sort of registers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 yeah. Actually, Jonathan Glazer does use a, an extended foley dip that never snaps back. In uh, in one of the final scenes of Zone of Interest, I think, bef- uh, you know, um, where the, the where he's at this big hall full of Nazis and the, the sound sort of goes down and he's sort of just on his own. Mm. Again, I actually thought filmmaking was good enough. It didn't need to do that, but mm, it didn't quite true. offend me as much as as the way the way it happened in in Horde, which I think where it was trying to stand in for you good filmmaking. You can overindulge on these techniques, I think. And if the yeah, message yeah. is generally to say uh, this person stands apart from their environment. Then cinema already has so many tools, so many tools that it's disposable in the literal camera, which it used for the best Mm. part of you know seventy years of its history before this, eighty years before this uh, comes in as a as a method. So it's symptomatic of a loss of faith in film and film's tools. I think it does it it does it does feel like we're we're living through an era of the foley dip because um, because people have forgotten about. The, the the beauty of forgotten their confidence in cinema to communicate. And forgetting about you know, forgetting about the, the interplay of, of, of you know the camera and space. You know, you think about even in its silliest iterations and most beautiful, which is a film at Tati with playtime, you know, how else do you how better to display the sort of urban alienation of character like Monsieur Hulot than to shoot him in these massive wides, you know. Mm. He's truly alone in, in these vast uh, capitalist modern spaces and that's a tool that's, you know, inherent to integral to film. Um, Absolutely. You know, we don't see Monsieur Hello slowly pressing his hand into the squeaky leather chair. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very, yeah. very true of Hulot. I mean, who, yeah. there's something really... Um, I don't talk about Tati very much, but there's something oh, in, in Mon Oncle and in, well, in all of his films. Mm. Uh, yeah, the sort of oddness of the sound design always at a distance visually mm. has this really like um kind of it, 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 it brings you closer it makes you, it makes you look closer and listen closer but mm. if you do this foley dip thing you're, you're patronizing the audience and you're basically not allowing them that wonderful agency uh, that the, the spectator it's has. creating a kind of path dependency about how you how you how you kind of pursue yourself through the film i yeah, think yeah. you know there's only one way to go in this moment it focuses you to too deeply, too closely on one specific thing, and doesn't yeah. trust the eye to sort of make it. And it has all the subtlety of kind of a of a, of a mid-rate DJ just kind of cutting out the, the <laughs> yeah <travel. laughs> faders down. Yeah, the travel for a drop, and then just putting it back in. You know, it, it really is mm. at that level of uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I will that watch is it though. I, I think I'll watch it. Absolutely, go and see how yeah, to have yeah. sex. I, I, I wish it wasn't too late to change the title, which is a a, a ghastly and awful, annoying title. Although. It's a memorable title. It will stick in people's heads. Certainly when I was in the press queue, people were kind of muttering constantly. Someone even looked at me and said, is this the queue for? And I just was like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, actually, I saw a red carpet interview. This is a bit of interesting kind of British British film speculation because this was funded by the BFI, whose kind of tastes we tend to be quite skeptical of on this podcast. Um, But uh, the director, Molly Manning-Walker, sort of said on the the red carpet, oh, I, I hope this 
film will will tell people uh how to have sex better um and uh it's i was sort of sli- felt slightly um not that that isn't an a- aim that i share but uh i felt like the film does a lot more than mm. just provide kind of uh Sex education. Sex videos. education. Yeah. yeah if yeah. essentially, I felt like I felt like it was underselling the project, but I also understand mm. that maybe that's sort of what you have to say or how you have to frame mm. something that's that's something that's as nuanced and rich as this. Um, and obviously, I do think it does. I think what was interesting about the relationships in it is it doesn't it doesn't like like diagrammatically tell you like something sort of banal about consent. What it shows that's very interesting and and mm. and engaging is like the role that relationships and care play in physical intimacy. And I think, mm. you know, at, at the very, this is giving away bits of the plot, but like at the start, you know, you're wondering, when you see these guys, you're wondering like, who is she going to pick? Like, how is this going to pan out? You're constantly worried that someone you've be- begun to trust, like like the character Badger, for instance, you know, you, you start to think, oh God, is he going to turn out to do something horrible? You know, there's this more handsome figure, Paddy, who, um, who becomes, uh, who's an old friend of Badger. And there's this wonderful scene after his, he's sort of, um, he's, you know, hurt her quite a lot. Um, where, where Paddy says, uh, this is sort of zone of interest, banality of evil territory, but, uh, where, uh, you know, she's Badger sort of senses that, that Paddy's done something wrong to Tara. And, uh, and he just sort of says, oh yeah, he's, he's crazy, man. You know, but I've known him since we were kids, you know, he, he lived on the, on the road on the same road as me our parents we used to hang out and she just he just says she just like says that's cool it's just like really icy but yeah there's something about the way that she she has this effect she she initially thinks he's the more attractive one and and her friends were like you should go with him he's much better than this guy and da, da, da. uh and then it's it's kind of it's not it's 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 his his cruelty it's his lack of care lack of awareness or or sensitivity um in his in you know uh in his capacity as someone who uh who is sort of romantically involved with with the protagonist that that makes that like uh it's it's just what i'm getting at is that the the story has a a a beautiful and 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 undogmatic nuance to it uh, which i feel the title doesn't uh even though of course it does tell you how not to have sex <laughs> i think it's a tender portrayal of it, it, i mean it sounds weird to say this in the context of what the film ultimately portrays but it is the tender portrayal of this sort of uh working class space um and it's not like a, a patronizing or a moralistic or an appalled one correct which regards it as you know like uh vulgar and debased or anything i mean like it's you know even like there's there are these uh like gross kind of party games that they're all encouraged, this sort of forced fun sort of situations where they're all like a bit hesitant to get involved actually. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think all of this was handled like, mm. like kind mm. of, um, but what, what the question it begs is, you know, everyone makes a Bildungsroman as their first feature. That's literally the word that was rolling around in my head. I was like, well, this is like a concentrated building. Second mm. <laughs> like, mm. Well, I'm afraid yeah. to say that the best British films are in the last 20 years have all been debuts. Um, mm. And uh, some directors, Mark Jenkin, Peter Strickland. Mm. Jonah Hogg, actually, I, I think has, has kept... Jonah Hogg has, has uh, kept... Hogg's best film is still yeah. unrelated. But her best yeah. film is still unrelated. Yeah. 
Um, but she's kept True. a higher standard than the other names I mentioned. Um, but yes, there are there are there is other ca- this is the case of the of the dwindling debut. Um, I think a lot of these yeah, these she, films it, come from quite personal subject matter often as well, yeah. which means they kind of land with this 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 grand idea. And like you said, George often buildings romance. They're often reflecting their own personal, sentimental, and and romantic. And aesthetic journeys that they're kind of mm-hmm. casting onto film. I, mean, I can't. I don't imagine. I don't know what this director's background is really like, but uh, it might reflect a certain, you know, sort of shared common experience of yeah. you know, university. I actually sexual wa- dynamics. And things like I that. watched a short that she made during lockdown, and um, mm. I can't remember the name of it, but you'll be able to find it if you search her name. Um, and it was made. I think it was made as part of some kind of lockdown filmmaking initiative, and it was unlike a lot of the films that were just shot on Zoom in a really kind of naff way. She sort of shot it through windows and she was making a film about a couple where one of them was uh, quite ill and couldn't mix. Uh, mm. And so, and and uh, it was blocked, but it was it was blocked in this beautiful way. She did this great thing with depth. Um, so I think it's it's no bad thing to let cinematographers move up to the directing spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Sean Press Williams as well. This yeah, is, uh, yeah, this true. Sean Press Williams. Two, two sort um, of DOP come directors. Though, shall, um, I, shall I ring my little bell and say, gentlemen, time, please? Yes, very good idea. Um, I'm sorry to leave you out. We discussed at great length a film that you haven't seen. And I just contributed anyway because... No, well, the podcast, folio, your yeah, contribution yeah, to the Folio yeah. Dips uh, discussion was much needed. Um, shall we run the gamut briefly? Well, let's talk about Totem, actually. A film that we yeah, saw Yeah, because spiritually, maybe it feels of the same ballpark, maybe. And uh, sort of, you know, relatively formally adventurous uh, film, which is... So Totem... Uh, is a is it a is it a debut? It's not second, second film, film by Laila Avias. Film uh, by which is a Mexican film. I thought it was Spanish. More for yeah. me, it is a Mexican film. That's because I said um, it was Spanish. Then yeah. more for me. Um, but it's speak the same language, uh, and it's shot in a sort of um, this intimate, over the shoulder. Uh, th- yeah, this kind of evocation of intimi- intimacy in a house in the lead up to a birthday. So it has mm-hmm. a kind of festin. Uh, Thomas Vinterberg kind of um, feeling to it. Um, this is again quite a morbid film in some senses. Mm-hmm. The uh, the sort of fa- the the main character is really this this young girl sort of and her mum who are, we we first meet on their way to the party, and we find out that the young girl's dad is is dying. So he's got fatal um, disease. I, I think something like leukemia or something. I um, mean he's you know very wasted and uh, has a full time living carer. Um, and he's sort of preparing himself for this birthday party that he knows will be his final birthday party. He's, you know, young, he's 27 years old. And so we're introduced to this kind of chaotic, uh, this, you know, this this very like Alexei Goldman-style apartment, you know, there's bodies everywhere, there's no privacy. Uh, people are kind of like shitting and pissing and showering with the, everyone just running into the room, you know. So it has this real corporeality to it. And it's very, um, I think, uh it's it's not it's not frictionless this party you know there's emotions are running high um characters are getting drunk arguments spill out mm-hmm. there's misunderstandings um so it creates this very kind of rich textured portrait of mm-hmm. family life which i found really compelling um you know very beautiful and very real in a sense mm-hmm. you know even though it was very strange you know there's kind of interesting devices like the father has a his no larynx anymore, so he has to use one of these uh, voice boxes, and it kind of adds this element of kind of quirky, Lynchian, dirty weirdness to mm. the proceedings. Um, in what would otherwise be quite a straight-faced story of you know this quite somber uh, melodrama or quite manipulative melodrama about a dying man, mm-hmm. it turns into actually quite a 
weird evocation of the end of life and it's becomes quite celebratory of life and it's in its in its scrappiness i thought yeah the bittersweet um, tone is sustained throughout and and mm. kind of well intensifies actually um i think it's a very colorful film a very beautiful rich film just visually mm. it's shot in a style that i'm sometimes wary of mm. but i think it comes off totally it well it works it's, here because it, it matches has this the floaty over the shoulder vibe it's mm. told not entirely but almost entirely from the perspective of uh this this very young girl um in uh, that it was like playground what's her name sol sol, sol. is the name of the girl. Solicito. Yeah. Um, it, it reminded me of Playground in that sense. Playground, we're very often good. Seeing the sh we're often at kid height, you know, we're seeing yeah, the parents' yeah. knees and bums and things like that. And it's, you know, um, I think it was quite... Commentary angle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also at times, these quite, you know, these quite sublime moments where we focus on various creatures and animals. Mm. And, you know, there'll be yes. a cricket or a bug or a parrot and we go very, very close to them. Sometimes the kids are kind of poking them or regarding them or something. And sometimes not, there'll be a snail on a leaf. And we get these little... You know, they're not they're 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 almost like these little interstitial moments of 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 exotic elsewheres, I suppose, that are quite interesting and they're not explained or rendered. They don't need mm -hmm. to be. They're just part of this noisy, messy, yeah, rotting, yeah. organic living house, I think, is part of the the tent with those. And I really liked that. It's beautiful and very yeah, the sound mix as well sort of uh, totally um relates to this. Um yeah, I thought it was very moving. I don't think we won't dwell on it for terribly mm. long. Yeah, it's it's basically it's just a great film. Um, yeah, I saw it. I didn't see it at Berlin. It was at the Berlin that we were at, but I um, I caught it at uh, at the, one of the special presentations that they had, mm. at London Film Festival, and the director was there, and she was an absolute charmer. She gave a, a kind of rip roaring intro, very brief, and then uh, answered questions at the end. There was one question from the audience that irked me so mm. violently. Uh, it was from a woman who says, uh, "I'm a filmmaker." Uh, and I just wanted to know your the performances you got, British uh, filmmaker, um, from these from these children was so intimate. I was wondering whether you had a an intimacy director <laughs> on set, which just <laughs> the most extraordinary Ooh. suggestion. I mean, there weren't no there weren't any sex film. scenes, yeah. by the way, which is yeah. the only use there is for intimacy coordinators, yeah. which is I assume what she was referring to. But very kind of bizarre that she would think that. I mean, uh, that it wasn't the director's job. It to just goes to show, like, spontaneous, these things spontaneous performances from kids. And mm. also, kids are actually, I don't have a huge amount of experience directing kids myself, mm. but, like, they are just, they perform well. And, and the answer that she gave was, like, uh, you know, they basically did it. Like, they're basically just, like, mm. and, and, and you work with their energy. They're not as good at, like, giving you a particular thing each time. But, like, by working with the energy of these these very young people, uh, the film gains its own energy, and I think that's something very important. Quite a charitable answer, considering the the stupidity of the question. No, of course you should have just 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 uh, walked off stage. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> asking someone like Jersey Skolomowski probably. Yeah, yeah, fuck punched off. him. If if it had been Pedro Costa, Pedro Costa's famous for just giving very short answers. I was watching <laughs> yeah. a Pedro, I was watching uh, a Pedro Costa Q and A last night actually on YouTube, and um, mm. uh, he said this amazing thing about how it's very terse, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. One of yeah, one of his films he made uh, called um, uh, Bones, which was I think the first Fontaine Hash film. Uh, he was very concerned that uh, he that all the interesting stuff was happening behind the camera or left or right, not where the camera was pointing. And and he says you've always got to make sure that you know the the camera the camera equipment isn't too unwieldy or the the set isn't too slow that you can't suddenly move around and capture mm. the, the thing that's most interesting. And I felt that Totem uh, 
managed to achieve capturing the most well, interesting it, it does what this this camera technique or this this modality of filmmaking is supposed to do which is mm -hmm. it's supposed to make you feel like you're there yeah you know that's yeah. really the, that is what this camera technique is for so you know lots of people use it our director is always aware that that's why yeah. it's what it's for it's to make you feel like you're in this space and you can it was immersive it but it wasn't it, uncomposed yeah. i suppose yeah no it still found moments of you know to to frame really interestingly in this moment i i, I liked its controlled chaos you know mm. i like the fact that they light these lanterns and they go up and then one of them bursts into flames because it hits a candle and it just creates this kind of non-perilous chaos that kind of spills out um and there's some moments of interest sort of strange intrigue in in the film as well this thing with these paintings that are getting shipped off oh yeah yeah there's there's nice things that aren't just tied aren't tied up they're I mean, glanced at and then there's like sort of darkness yeah. running through it uh and difficulty and 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 um something that maybe in a uh, robin usland film would sort of become a real kind of like mm. would really feel like you know stepping barefoot on some lego but actually in in this in this film the kind of middle class angst is just like ambient and like you're more you're more drawn we experience it as a child yeah I you're think, more yeah. drawn towards the like playful mm. aspects the, the aspects that someone who doesn't have adult responsibilities would notice and i think that's mm. quite a beautiful approach it's a childlike film about yep. childhood but about being a child and dealing with something that really momentous really momentous yep. really yep. grown yep. up and really painful yeah, um, so good. Great film. Great film. Totem, go mm. see it. It is going to be released. I'm going to start, when I like a film, I'm going to start being a bit evangelical. We should. Because Lila Avilis rem reminded me of this this box office uh, quirk, which is that if you don't see a film on its opening weekend, then uh, it's sort of unlikely to, you know, have be booked for multiple, for even mm. if you, you do, you know. Yeah, you, they judge by that, that opening weekend. That's exactly. Sort of so see it metric. in December on the opening weekend. It's distributed by New Wave Films, mm. uh, who are also distributing the Victor Erite film, which we will talk about later. Mm -hmm. But now, shall we segue, since dear George is here, live from Berlin, recently arrived from London, uh, to four films that George saw on his own <laughs> while we were all doing. Actually, it was a hit and <laughs> <not gonna laughs> hit run. Uh, yeah, oh. we'll give you we're gonna give you a timer. We'll, we'll give, give you, you two minutes. minutes, two minutes on each one. No, no, yeah. one minute. No, one two minute. no, no. Are there any that you think need need more? Hitman. What you saw? You walked out of Hitman. Why did you That'd walk out of Hitman? Yeah. Right, Hitman. I gave a total of twenty minutes. So uh, I mean, Hitman is from Linklater, who uh, we may know. From such films as the Before Trilogy, School of Rock, um, Boyhood, the, the Slackers, Days and Confused tape. I mean, some, um, sometimes charming, uh, whimsical, uh, very often uh, deeply nostalgic, um, mm -hmm. but you know, not unlovable. This was profoundly, profoundly drab, naff, nothing. I mean, uh, it it almost felt like it was a fulfillment of some sort of contractual obligation film, like. But then I checked his IMDb and it turns out since boyhood, he's cranked out about four of these sorts of light, light comedies. Um, the premise is basically uh, a kind of uh, Ned Flanders style uh, milk toast gets, um, who is a psychology prof at uh, a uh, high school, gets um, roped in to be, become a hitman. Uh, which, as implausible as it seems, has a grounding in real life or something. Uh, and he proves to be very good at it um, for a bet. And that's, that's as much as we get. And with, all the exposition is done via a VO uh, in, in the like first two minutes. And yeah, then, a good sign. <laughs> um, and I just, I couldn't stand it. I mean, the, the, the problem is when you're, when you're in, a, when you're watching one of these things in uh, the setting of a packed out, B BFI NFT one 
uh, and everybody else is having a, an uproarious great time. And the only mm. function of this sort of um, completely cinematically maladroit film is if the gags hit, they hit. If they don't, I mean, what was I? What was I going to do? So I just left. Uh, it mm. was. It was for you. Profound living out, living out your truth as as you must. Yeah. Um, um, shall we move on okay, to so next? Anselm I voted with my feet on this one. I'm afraid. Mm. Uh, yeah. But you also saw Anselm by Vim Vendors, the new film by Anselm Kiefer. Yeah, stuck, yeah, stuck out. Um, so this is a slightly more, slightly more querulous one. So uh, this is like the second film that uh, Vendors has out this year in, in various competitions. He has a, he has a fiction as well. A yeah, Perfect, Perfect Days. Perfect Days, which yeah, we didn't yeah. see. But um, uh, in this kind of um, twilight stage of his career, Vendor seems to have settled out into the becoming a kind of uh, Kunstler film documentarian of various people he respects and admires, uh, which is, you know, a venerable tried and tested route. Uh, at Locarno, I saw a, a Barbette Schroeder film about a, a French painter mate of his. So, you know, it happens. Um, mm. This, however, was, I think, both the wrong subject and the wrong way of approaching it he chose Kiefer and some Kiefer who for the you know listeners aren't aware is a um blue chip uh German painter studied with Joseph Boys who is uh in the popular perception known for having kind of broken the silence around um uh uh, German guilt in the, the 70s through various, you know, uh, and then had settled. And also out. about the uh, the ability of women to paint, <laughs> famously. A couple that's Basilitz. That's Was that Basilitz? Oh, sorry, I've I've confused two equal. Uh, in the same generation, pretty much the same. I'm terribly sorry <laughs> to Anson Kiefer for slandering um, um, you there, but Basilitz does outsell Kiefer, so I don't know if that stands for much. True, true. Um, Kiefer, mm. Kiefer, yeah, it's still fairly profitable, but uh, he basically is Bavera, these large, gloomy um, impasto. Uh, um, landscapes which are cranked out on an industrial scale often of uh with bits of hay kind of uh, incinerated on the and um, in the mix that's which... so damning sorry sorry i, 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 I do really think it's kind of accurate think... though but it's yeah it's it, the, no, I think yeah exactly it was great once but he has since the 90s cranked out kind of industrial um show a kitsch on a really uh quite alarming scale oh, oh, also oh, endangered a lot of the gallery assistants have had to work in their spaces through painting lead Melt, yeah painting um, lead melting kind of burning all of these chemicals and there is a film about um oh. about him already by there's sophie already a film about him exactly yeah. by uh by sophie, sophie fines, fines which i think yeah. is superior to this one um your city's grass will grow uh, film, yeah this this kind of purports initially to be uh like the fines film over your city's grass will grow which is a line i think from salon which is named the painting that he takes in the 80s mm. um which is just to kind of dwell in the wonder of this kind of neverland style world this uh graceland this rich man's um, paradise that he's uh, built for himself in in southern france in do you know where it is Boussac or uh, yeah is it something i thought it was like uh i thought it was central france uh, it's close to the german border if i remember but he's moved subsequently um his studio um for some i probably presumably for tax reasons um, uh, Barjak, Barjak, yeah. Barjak, so it's, it's yeah. the kind of world he's created there. Um, with all yeah, this is kind of Dixieland in a strange way, like yeah, uh, post-war guilt, Dixieland, um, natural history of destruction, Disneyland. So what I found uh, profoundly irritating about this film is that um, it 
uh, it kind of uses the toolbox of uh, cinematic effects that uh, Wenders has honed pretty much since uh, Himmel over Berlin. Um, for, uh, for instance, uh, often this use of this like polyphony of different whispered voices on the soundtrack, which is meant to mm. suggest this uh, interweaving of past and present historical memory, etc., which was you know is used quite effectively, I think, in uh, what's what uh, Himmel over Berlin. What is I'm having a an expat moment here. What's the, what's the What's the sky, title? Skies over yeah. Berlin. Or, or, is it just it called? Himmel means sky. Sky over Berlin. Over if you start forgetting English words, George. <laughs> and German, apparently. Just wings of Desire. Oh, Wing, oh Wings of Desire, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you remember the scenes in the library, for instance, or on the... Yeah, where Bruno Ganz is just kind of... On the subway when observing, you have all these voices melding yeah. in and out of each yeah. other. So here you have this, but they're just kind of rambling incoherent bits of porcelain mm. or Bachmann. And... The the film seems to suggest that um, artistic activity is anchored in the wonder of a child and uh, and about sustaining the child's approach to the world. And to drive this point home, we have a young version of Ansam Kiefer, who is uh, dramatized in various scenes, walking and kind of scrolling in his notebook or just walking through the room. It's very like Peter Greenaway and Peter Greenaway's treatment of historical subject matter. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's, uh, really, it's, it's like quite a hokey device that's used on sort of, it's very history channel, but it's, it's, it's like very history elevated channel, history yeah. channel kind of motif. It's very like Arte documentary for like German mm. um, uh, treatment of culture, cinematically mm. like uh, completely um, flat-footed. Uh, and... So it does this. It also doesn't at any point interrogate the fact of like what is sustaining this world. Like uh, this, mm. this world he's created himself. It seems to just be sustained by this man's imagination alone. So we have him falling asleep with a, a volume of Paul Celan's poems on his chest. And then you have these kind of dreamy like saccades through uh, the enormous warehouse where they're pumping out these paintings. There's no mm. suggestion that these paintings will eventually arrive in some like Frankfurt art, uh, Frankfurt banker's apartment to be you know hung over his... Oh, uh, so it's kind of divorced from the this no, absolutely. Sort of, and then uh, it, productive what, economy. What is bringing the, the materials in? What are the constituents of success? There's no suggestion mm. that, like, there yeah, is. Because the most interesting thing about Kiefer is oh. his relationship, you know, his critique of his his romantic critique of industrialization and mechanized warfare, and yet yeah. his total reproduction of that an industrial scale in terms of how he produces his art. That's the, the interesting, yeah. maybe unintended or emergent dissonance at the heart of Kiefer's practice that makes me have a real soft spot for him. Um, mm. But, and it's weird as well, because it did it not engage, it's interesting he's focused on Salam because, you know, his big concern over the last few years has been like string theory and me in molecular biology. He's got this kind of mad... Yeah, none of that came interest. in. It was very much yeah. Hum's focus. So we had we had uh, Salam reading on the... Um, uh, on archival footage and it also like when it lost its way a bit with just uh the documentation of him in various states of wonder in in and around <laughs> his own work it began to rely on archival footage and it only allowed itself to kind of critique uh mm. um the the status of this kind of now institution this uh, untouchable mm. institution of german culture through the lens of this archival footage where you actually see that there, there were, you know, various uh, critics throughout his career who were challenging him on on the reproduction of particular motifs. But it, even then, it kind of projects them dreamily over his um, his existing space. Oh, so it's doing almost this kind of immersive uh, art experience. Yeah, exactly. Like um, I think it just it was. Thing, yeah. It ended up creating Funny. this like uh, sustained fantasy depiction of what um, of kind of like to death death kitsch or whatever mm, else but mm. it didn't uh 
uh, it pulled its punches uh, at almost every um, turn. Yeah. That's why I preferred the Sophie Fines one, which kind of sustains this dreamy mood of Wonderman. And I think had it done that, it would have been a more successful. We also hear, if I, I mean, I haven't seen this other film, but in, in Sophie Fines' film, we actually hear a lot from Keith himself at his kitchen table talking quite yeah. um, precisely about uh, his his creative practice and exactly there's not there's him. not so much of this instead you see this mm. kind of lazy emperor just parading around <laughs> flinging bits of paint and kind of turning on his flamethrower pseudo randomly to douse different canvases <laughs> plus his assistants yeah. look on the him. emperor has no hose yeah no, something no. like this um Shall but we... when, when you watch a film like this you understand uh what sustains and kind of generates certain misconceptions of like artistry and artistic practice and uh and how various kind of 19th century dogmas of uh mm. of kind of genius persist in spite of changes in artistic activity in general it's not that we don't believe in genius it's just it doesn't mm. look like this <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay uh would you like to continue this run with sky peels yeah, let me just refer. Yeah, Sky. Okay, so Sky Peel's uh, Moin Hussein. I think it's his first feature. Um, uh, shot on film. Quite um, it. Quite an interesting depiction of uh, suburban alienation. So it's it's all set in a. Uh, it's about uh, this guy Adam Mohammed who is works in a burger joint and a. Um, in a, a service station motorway service station and is dealing with the the loss of a father that he never knew but turns out to have been a kind of regular uh customer in and around him so he's this already this sort of spectral figure um and it has lots of the elements of a a kind of social realist kitchen sink affair um a kind of uh hatchet faced love interest to uh is his colleague at the burger place with her who's a young mum. um and uh with whom he has a sort of like uh um series he's he's, he's a little bit on the spectrum uh, fa fairly awkward encounters at one of the burger burger night socials however it introduces um i partially through the cinematography which is uh it's quite muddy but makes use of the um the strange synthetic kind of uh, sickly glow of something like a motorway service station to a pretty interesting cinematic effect. Um, it introduces, uh, a, I won't spoil it, but a, a strange premise, which it doesn't then reconcretize or make uh, or explain away, uh, which is rare for a British film, I think, to uh, introduce this note of um indecision or ambiguity and and let it linger rather than mm, uh yeah. deciding to reinscribe it again uh into something literal for instance oh and you've written about these drug experiences which allow for like the the phantomus mcgorick to come in for like mm. 10 minutes of the film and then just contain yep. it. a sort of guest guest star 10 minutes of, of whereas in this the, in sky fields i think it quite quite successfully managed to bleed out uh, and suffuse all of the okay. uh, other parts of the film um, and the, the wider environment. Uh, and is this an endorsement of this thing. film? So, so is, this, is, this, is this a film I should, I should, I should chase down? If I'm... Yeah, check it out. I, I, yeah, I think definitely yeah, check okay. it out. Um, Distributor, does it have one? Not sure, actually. I didn't look into it. Who uh, was it, fun? Did it? Did it have BFI logos at the start? Or... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so hmm. it, might, it might get distributed by the BFI. Yeah. Potentially. Potentially. Um, yeah. Cool. 
It was in Critics Week as well, so I think yeah, Venice. Oh, okay. So. Cool. okay. Jolly good. Um, do you want to do a quick Hamaguchi before we? Yeah. Before. Then we should reset. This, this is undoubtedly gonna uh, go gangbusters. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's worth uh, an appraisal too. Um, okay, so Hamaguchi. Uh, I'm sure none of us with that taken would derive my Kaya, um, the Oscar winner from this uh, Japanese director. However, uh, I did quite like the other film he put out in the same year, which was uh, the Wheel of Fortune, the Fortune and Fantasy. Wheel and Fortune Forgetting, I think it was, um, which was a kind of episodic. No, uh, it was fantasy. It was I Fortune and Fantasy. I remember how Owen said it. It was fantasy. Okay, <laughs> what, yeah. did I, what did I we say? We get our last episode. We um, had a few like um, clubs. Okay, few yeah. people correcting us on stuff. Uh, yeah, we made a few a few little. So clubs, I, I don't so, want to get too. Are you going to do some erratum now? Just run run down. Oh, I mean, it's it's a long scroll of lists of uh, of many varied mistakes and crimes. Um. Real of Fortune and Fantasy. Real of Fortune right. and Fantasy, yeah. right. Uh, which yeah. I, I thought was, um, I mean, it was a very literary film. It also looked like shit. I mean, it looked like television. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, it was fine. It was fun. Uh, was, in, was actually quite interestingly directed and... Mm, I thought so. Romarian, I thought. Anyway, so this new one, uh, he's got a new DOP uh, from both of those films. Um and it looks much better. So it's a okay. It's a, it's a rural community. It's a little bit Fargo. It's a little bit um, a little bit Manchester by the Sea, actually. This sort of uh, 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 yeah, lots of people in in, in beanies um, collecting potable water from the from the river. And uh, for the first two thirds of this film are still pastoral um, and trying to suggest a kind of. Uh, what the title uh, indicates, which is that evil does not exist. It's this um, uh, state of respite or calm, these simple people living simple existences. And then we have the intrusion of these kind of uh, urbanites from Turk Tokyo who are planning to set up a glamping resort. Oh, in, so it's, it's a sort of gentrification. Uh, right, which which then is meant to introduce the one note of tension uh, drama, which means that for the first, yeah, the uh, the first at least half of the film, the main point of uh, dramatic tension in the film is the introduction of a septic tank, to <laughs> uh, which was profoundly irritating because this was uh, this was really all that was going on. Everybody was uh, unflaggingly polite to one another. Every every time there were, there were no seemingly no class tensions between anybody, um, and this was a world. It was a kind of bourgeois fantasy in which uh, in which evil does genuinely not exist. Um, and initially I thought, okay, he's sending up, uh, he's kind of pillorying mm. a particular mode of, uh, gentle, genteel art house filmmaking. I'm thinking something like the most egregious example I recently saw was, uh, Petit Mamam by, uh, mm. Celine, what's her name? But in Drive Who My, dri in Drive, <laughs> in Drive My Car, he is doing his own genteel art house nonsense right yeah but also there's, there's, there's quite a thought. clinical it's quite maybe... a clinical and alienating film in some senses yeah. you know that's one thing you can say about driving my car is it's quite good at, at communicating an um, ambience of of sort of 
urban diffidence and anime like it's, it's yes and this is not an urban film this is like yeah. uh this is but this is an urban filmmaker trying to uh lionize a kind of rural population and that you know the so you think it's sincere he's not he's not sort of opening this up for this this idea of this perfect bucolic well no, I, 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 I think it's ser- sincere but ineffectual yeah. it kind of tries to get at this um this like untutored uh um profundity and a kind of um, stoic wisdom of this one character who is able to uh, eventually advise these urban incomers on why they should not place what they've placed in the septic tank right but i was you know i was profoundly bored by this point by the septic tank it's and a load then of shit the final <laughs> the final uh third of the film takes a lurch into far more interesting um terrain but it's not it's it's not really deser- deserved. It's like an annex that has been built onto um, like a beautiful, like, uh, you know, uh, abridgment to a film that doesn't, it, it doesn't really belong there. And uh, um, at this point, evil does exist. Uh, and mm-hmm. there are several really. Um... This premise seems utterly contrived. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. The title. The title is almost as bad as how to have sex. Right. Um, I mean, <laughs> That's how the I, could, I could be wrong in his motivations here, but I did feel that he was sending up, uh, uh, yeah, a certain model of. Uh, it's uh, just like a satire. Of, well, if it is, it's very, it's very light and astutely, uh, very kind of um, adroitly done because it is every time you think that the tensions, but for instance, between these uh, urbanites and the mm. rural community are going to escalate and that there will be some sort of flashpoint, it simmers down. Uh, and it's and it's right. placated, and they they buy him off or something. Uh, and it, I, and playing in the back of my mind was the film we recently saw, Europa, which is much less uh, much less naive, and much braver, I think, in in mm. kind of confronting it the reality. It sounds kind of uh, in 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 some ways, it's kind of giving Kelly Reichardt first cow. You know, this return to earth, this return to sort of the natural and the organic and the no, there the is a lot of Rikatian kind of like um uh the pleasures of just watching simple people do simple processes. So for instance, mm. there uh, you know, there is an ongoing motif of um this uh this kind of groundskeeper character collecting um the water which he then from the stream, which he then distributes to various members of the local rural community, and then the uh the the kind of rootless urbanite cosmopolitan man from nowhere who comes to um, sell a glamping resort to them becomes fascinated by this process and wants to do it himself. He also wants to use the axe to chop the wood. Uh, I wasn't really uh, so taken by this because we've seen it depicted more interestingly. And Mm. a lot of it was very formally drab, very slow, very... uh, um, yeah, and, and very kind of contender and cutesy and like manga, to be honest. Um, mm. And that's what I also felt. But even when I liked Wheel and Fortune and Fantasy, it was it was manga. It was uh, it was kind of saccharine sweet. And the baddies are such execrable baddies that it's just like. Yeah, I just I just don't think Hamaguchi is that interesting a director. But the but final, probably, the final he goes gangbusters. Just a little and, kind of to me. It was a. I mean, I, I don't want to be. Uh, um run the charge of orientalism here but it was like an actor seppuku it was just like a way of disemboweling his entire finally film. Oh. uh, uh mm. with such a lurch into kind of uh yeah i mean i haven't seen his whole earth so there could be areas but i, I highly doubt it actually where he's done this sort of thing before um and it will displease the sort of audience that uh mm. 
so I don't drive my car. So, but it didn't wholly please you either. I mean, the, the, the yeah, the final part did. It just didn't. Oh. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. Yeah. From the, oh. Sorry, it is, it is, it's hard to really give a coherent treatment of what is. Yeah, so like, go and quiet, see. Turn up an hour late. Coherent film. <laughs> to, to the new to the new Hamaguchi film. So, listeners, George has now departed uh, because he did not see the two films we're about to discuss. Um, it was a momentous finale to London Film Festival mm. for me personally to see the new films by Pedro Costa and Victor Erice. Um, one of them was, of course, a fully-fledged feature-length uh, effort from famously a director who's very rarely makes films. This is his fourth of four. He's an 82-year-old man. 84-year-old. 84-year-old. He was somewhere born in 1940, so yeah. He was born in his early 80s. Um, so he's, he's, you know, he's, he looks his, great for it, actually. He yeah, looks, he looks remarkably he looks remarkable. together. Um, you know, his 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 output, um, while slim, has always been considered, you know... I mean, Spirit of the Beehive, his, his, his kind of debut... Um, from the from the 1970s is you know widely considered to be the great spanish film mm. um in a lot of regards and it is i rewatched it recently and it's i watched it sorry first time uh watched it first time a couple of weeks ago in anticipation of this and it's uh extraordinary mm -hmm. um mesmerizing strange um ethereal thing um and then he made el sud the south mm -hmm. um which was largely considered to be compromised in some senses because mm -hmm. the uh, funding was pulled halfway through the film it was it was finished in some senses but uh wasn't you know the complete thing that he had intended to create and there's a quincery son um which is a study of an artist which is good that's fine and he's made lots of well-regarded shorts in, in in between but this is his first really big feature since really since his debut in some senses uh oh, i know. suppose so yeah i mean it's quincery son is like two hours right it's like yeah but it's, it's a documentary yeah, you I suppose. Really. Quite it's quite a constructive Yeah, yeah, yeah constructive documentary. So it's sort of like, yeah. Quincy's Sun is like the only way is Essex for like, kind of like <laughs> artists. You know? it's for the like, Kunstler film. It's kind of constructed it, reality, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's the grounding. Yeah, there's something like beautiful and unique and also very like direct about all of his films. Uh, and they all revolve around a certain sense of magic felt in the creative experience. Uh, but none of them probably direct their... Uh, attention to this in such a bold way as Close Your Eyes, which is mm, his, his newest latest. film. Because it is much more literary. In yeah. Sense. It's, it's a very, very delicately um, fabricated uh, story. Yes. And, you know, it's 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 very dialogic. The world building goes deep. It really this does. Film. This is the most interesting thing about it because it's very, it's very dialogic. It's uh, very conversational. Um, has quite a, like a broad, large cast of quite interesting characters. And, you know, it's this 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 sense that um, what he is uh, a thought just completely escaped my brain. That's worrying. Um, so, shall I say yeah, a little talk, bit about the I premise of the film? Like, yeah, you do the premise, so I try to remember what I was actually going to so say. So we begin with a very ornate, restrained, and beautiful art house film that we assume is made at some point in the latter Shot half on of the twentieth century. Celluloid, I think. Shot on Shot celluloid, film, yeah. 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 Um, with like the same kind of like icy grain of Spirit of the Beehive. Mm. Um, and uh, it's the beginning of a film uh, called The Farewell Gaze. Um, and it's about a, a, a man who wants uh, 
who's instructing See, who's, someone, who, yeah. a Jew actually, who's instructing uh, private investigator. a private investigator who saved him during the Holocaust uh, to find his daughter who he has become estranged from. Uh, because and he's dying, but he wants to see his daughter for the last time because uh, she's the last, the, the last living lineage of lin- his. Lineage. Of, like he, she's the last living blood relative. And before he dies, he wants yeah. w- his last relative to look at him the way that to only regard a relative him. to regard yeah. him the way that only a relative can look at. So already, it's establishing this kind of like precious sense of mm. like the um, the experience of uh, of looking uh, and or also. A sense of uh, connection and loss. It just establishes all the themes of the film. Uh, and also a wider theme of the film, I would say, uh, is the fact that I thought Victor Elifo was dead. I didn't know it. I never read it anywhere. <laughs> I just assumed because, sort of Mandela because he stopped making films mm. a long time ago. Uh, and because so many of the greatest filmmakers of the 20th century died in the last they 15 get cut years. short yeah and i think um, the, the, the film engages with this but i think quite playfully with this sense of his own absence from filmmaking and it doesn't try to explain it or justify it, it doesn't need to justify it you can make as many or as few films as you want um but it it does engage with the idea of the in, in this film it concerns a, a missing daughter and a missing mm. actor which is yeah. going to but it also concerns Thay's own absence from um filmmaking and his own kind of ghostly presence yeah the continued kind of pulsation of films like Spirit of the Beehive exactly. and Quidditch Tree Sons. So it's, yeah, absences and presences, which I find very interesting. And the thing it creates overall, mm-hmm. um, maybe I'm jumping the, gun, jumping the gun, but is this, um, you know, what Raymond Williams calls, you know, a structure of feeling. Yeah. This, this, this kind of, it, it is a film of feelings and senses and sensations. And yep. that's its most kind of compelling part that work all these different storied levels, which is yeah. because... You know, after this this faceted film within a film, the film then resets mm. and establishes a different reality related to the film we've just watched, um, yeah, yeah. and it's set not in the present day but in 2012. So we watch a film set in 1947 that's actually made in 1990, and then we see the filmmaker of that film in 2012 uh, being contacted by a somewhat trashy uh, mm. documentary, unsolved t- cases TV mm. documentary about unsolved crimes cases. Uh, missing person mm. cases uh, and the actor of the film is uh, missing presumes dead but no one ever found the body no one knows anything about him um, and then the film then goes on to discover someone who might be the actor uh, and and uh, and it kind of uh, it toys with these themes established of memory uh, of loss of people changing of the ability of cinema to capture, uh, uh, like to sort of, um, like capture someone's essence, mm. um, and also to fool and mislead us, because this is an important part of, you know, I think certainly Spirit of the Beehive, because uh, that also is a film within a film, because yeah. um, they watch Frankenstein. They watch Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, the the sort of character, the, the presence of Frankenstein bleeds through into the the experience, the malleable experiences or the malleable emotions and mind of a young girl who becomes obsessed and fascinated with um, this figure of Frankenstein, uh, or the monster, to say so, mm-hmm. um, and is you know unable to really distinguish between reality and fiction, mm-hmm. and her sister says to her this very powerful line, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not real, the little girl didn't die, you know, cinema is just lies and trickery yeah you know he's got this very good amazing he victor has always been able to say yeah cinema is 
a falsification and a lie. But beyond that, there is a sort of strange prehistoric primeval magic there, nonetheless, mm -hmm. that is, you know, um, sort of always operating. So it's always operating between like manipulation and something stranger and, and more intangible. And in this sense, I think it's worth talking about the different textures and registers this film. Yeah. Works oh in. God, it's so. It's so. I mean, almost. Gonna, it yeah. does. It does this thing that actually Insane. Twin Twin Peaks: The Return uh -huh. does, which is yeah. to sort of take people from one setting and one register and one texture, and then see them later on mm. older in a different register. Um, it uses also this. I mean, it's filmed, I assume, on like an Arri Alexa or some kind of very um, industry standard cinema camera that, yeah. that has like quite a smooth flat image well not flat but like the like shallow depth of field but like very crisp image mm. where scenes largely quite dialogue heavy scenes but filmed in a very restrained intense way moving between sort of close up and and kind mm. of coverage standard coverage mm. uh where something unfolds some just some sort of gradually discoveries emerge uh about the histories of all these people but it's basically a lot of people who are living in the past not only people as old as the protagonist the director mm. uh who's kind of in some sense looking for his his former actor uh but also the daughter of the actor who's you know never had the closure never had the closure yeah. she works in a museum now but you get again the very telling that she works yeah. in the prado and in, exactly in she's also museum. the actress she is also the young girl in um Spirit of the Beehive. Is she? Is this news to you? It's news to me. Oh my God. Very, very so interesting. So There's also so a that's line. That's a very sort of Twin Peaks thing. There's also like, a line oh. in the film which is a direct line from Spirit of the Beehive. Oh, really? I, don't, I found that afterwards in the. Is Erithe Law? He is. He's brought up in an amazingly complex nested law yeah. in like two or three films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is amazing. And I think, yeah, like you said, there's these, these textural registers and tones that the film establishes and then shifts. And it doesn't, it, they never felt as like jarring dissonances partly because we get these slow fade to blacks between yes. key scenes it lets us breathe it's almost it's a blink it's the closing of an eye right yeah, so yeah. it gives us this closing of these eyes a gentle film in that way i feel extremely gentle and yet so something when i came out so i saw it before you mm -hmm. i came out and i was like it was such a weird film i was like i loved it but there was something there's something intangibly strange about it which is the intangible strangeness of i think david lynch's Twin Peaks season three, mm -hmm. it's got a similar sense of just real, the real and the, the 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 sort of odd and the strange and the defamiliarized kind of operating. Mm -hmm. And there's certain scenes that real really lynching, you know, particularly where we have got these musical interludes. Mm -hmm. You'll get a character kind of like when they're sitting around the table and they're playing guitar, oh, and yeah, singing. And this is the conjuring of music as well, mm. or the conjuring of art as a as a sort yeah. of way as a. And it's so yeah. it's really compelling and it's really sort of passionate but it's also deeply odd mm. when we're experiencing these moments and also the character's dialogue at times he seems to be borrowing from hollywood i would say so you know you, we get this friend max who's the kind of wise cracking mm. jaded old film editor mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of like a little bit of a bohemian wild card you know and he's got this kind he kind of fulfills this this trope like role within the film of like mm. the knowledgeable expert friend or mm. technical geek in a way so he's like the, uh, you know, if it was James Bond, he'd be like the um, Q of, mm. you know, this director's world because um, he has the gadgets and the know-how mm. and he comes in as this kind of white knight at the last minute to come and screen this film. Mm. Um, and so there's certain things about it that are quite formulaic, but they're not in a heavy-handed or flat-footed way, but actually serve the film as this kind of, this Fabergé egg of layers. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah, the, the thing that struck me the most, actually, and we, we 
it's not unusual to see someone in their 80s directing a film. I mean, Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon would fall into this category. Um, but there is something about the fact that he really is making a film about retirement or about like hmm. end of life or about that sort of emptiness, the, the way that, you know, there's this beautiful bit where uh, Anna Arias, the, the daughter of the, act, of the missing actor, kind of says, she describes her job at this at the uh, Prado, the gallery in Prado, Madrid, yeah, um, yeah. and she says, "Oh, you know, mm. it was fun for a while, but now I'm just I'm read you know reading out the same information about the same paintings every day kind of gets boring." You know, there's a real, and then he goes and visits like an old flame who he'd shared with this actor, and you know, there there are just these moments of looking back, and you know, it is a bit like uh, I don't, it's not a value judgment, but like mm. when you hang out with very old people who don't do very much with their lives. Uh, you know, uh, they they, have, they talk a lot about the past, about the past, the glory days. Exactly. You know, yeah, it's this evocation of this this supposedly better past that was probably inferior, but the, because of the power of nostalgia and the power of evoking it through memory. And the film, the unfinished more. film that mm-hmm. the whole film revolves around, has this kind of extraordinary um, part of its aura. I suppose is mm-hmm. that it was never finished, so it, it could, died it young. Always had the potential to be, have been. Well, a this is the thing. This is the thing that the, the character, the actor who goes missing, yeah, he he has stepped out of the flow of time yeah. in some senses, where all these other characters have been condemned to advance with the monotonous flow of time and inevitability towards death. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the question leaves. It it remains ambiguous whether the uh, missing actor who they believe they find working as a handyman with amnesia, another great kind of Hollywood trope, um, deployed here with real, like... Bet much better than Memory by Michel Franco, which yeah, I yeah. did defend when jo- when it was being pilloried by George, but I would yeah. say this was a, a more sensitive portrayal. Um, but yeah, so when we finally encounter this, this man, uh, and it's this kind of road trip element to the film then, and we go to the coast, um, and he's working as a as, yeah, handyman in this, this uh, sort of shabby but well-meaning uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of care home or hospice run by nuns mm. um, and then we get the whole gang kind of enters this space and you know the the film director is trying to see in this man um, his friend you know yeah. to identify him and and he believes it's him and then to try and I suppose shock him into realization of who he really is yeah and it's sufficiently ambiguous that um this man this this character it's it's not determined whether it is him or not we i mean it is him it definitely it is, is but him. it doesn't ever he's, say it because he's got the chart the picture of the chart he's got the chart so yeah, yeah but there's never yeah okay so there's there's but, in, but meaningfully it sort of isn't because his whole memory has been erased yeah and so it's always about this mm. there's this beautiful thing where he says um you know that you have to uh you know, he won't. He talks to like a neurologist, doesn't he? Doctor mm. Benavides. He talks to this like yeah, yeah. guy, and this guy's like, well, he won't be able to uh, remember context, but he'll be re- be able to remember sensations. Sensations and so emotions. So then he starts feelings. Yeah, yeah. So he starts. So like, he, the f- his first attempt to sort of resolve or uncover this is he does these sailors' knots in front of him, and then he, he then they the, were in the guy. Together. The guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the guy can do the the sailors' knots absolutely without flawlessly thinking it, yeah. without thinking about it. Uh, and then he sort of shows them a picture of them in the navy together, and the and the man <laughs> says, oh, "Yeah, but that's not me. He that's says not you either." Yeah, he says that's not us. That's <laughs> uh, not us. And and it's sort of um, like an amazing, and and it sort of a blindsides the guy because it's like it's yeah. not it's not going to be that. Simple. He's basically denying the past, yeah, which yeah. is the one thing this character can't do because he's consumed he's, by the past. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's I could have been this guy's a writer. There's this bit where he finds a copy of his book with mm. a, his own dedication 
uh, like hand signed to a form of flame yeah. just in a kind of flea market charity shop and then she buys it and gives it back to this woman who's now got like has had two wives since two yeah. husbands since uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they were together yeah these are the amazing senses of, of of trying to sort of integrate past present exactly. you know, or to try return to the past uh, as they're being flung mercy yes actually i didn't think about it at the time but it's the perfect conflict mm. for that protagonist to deal with someone who refuses to remember mm. because he's all he can do is remember and he's and because he's a filmmaker as well i mean this mm. is actually um god we need to un amend an addendum add uh, append uh our discussion about tendency for films to be about filmmaking that we um discussed yeah, in our last yeah, podcast yeah. because this is yet another film that very much reflects on the filmmaking process but most notable for me at this point is uh the the fact that actors and directors often have as i mean there are actor directors but often actor directors have a funny antagonistic relationship because i think in order to be a good actor you sort of have to be in the moment and and mm. and, and to not be self-conscious and not to be thinking about what will it look like on here um and to be a good director you have to be constantly planning ahead and imagining mm. while also responding to things that happen in the moment but you know you, there's a lot of looking forward to and planning ahead and, and stuff yeah. um uh, me, me and my flatmate ollie were reflecting and i do this diary film um and we were mm. talking about uh, how he takes a lot of photographs and never develops the film where i was talking about how i'm constantly like looking through footage and like trying to wrangle it and the, mm. these different ap approaches to sort of look looking forward to or living in the moment like the past and the present and i thought this from like actually i didn't think about it at the time but it was having this effect on me of making me think about yeah the position of the actor as someone who's sort of impervious to the record keeping of mm. the film yeah the indexical nature of film which is stored and protected and max who is this this, yeah. this uh editor uh is also a film conservationist and, yeah, yeah you know what his you know it's, it's a at the core face of rec the recording recorder, of, of yeah, the, yeah. And and he, he makes this remark about how everyone's putting stuff on hard drives but you know mm. he's film is the real thing he, he's know? a real purist and textualist yeah. and but you know obviously his job again is to mummify yeah. past which is exactly what the daughter is doing so it's another institution like the museum which mm. freezes an aspic yeah, yeah um these 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 things of beauty which are actually very fleeting you know, yeah like substance? it's like it's like that jelly stuff oh uh, the silica gel thing you're silica gel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. no you're supposed to eat aspic but it tastes like shit oh. i used it in the 70s to like use those kind of 70 those kind of like disgusting displays of like fruit and uh, vegetables okay, to and keep meat. it yeah yeah it's really yeah, horrible okay. stuff um Oh yeah, to, to, but so don't eat it if to, you see it in those packets. Yeah, don't eat silica gel. Uh, that's uh, official health warning. Um, yeah. Unless you want to kill yourself, in which case, yeah, sure. Uh, have we don't gel. endorse suicide. ending your life. <laughs> no, <laughs> we don't. Um, we, so yeah, so there's there's various characters who are who are trapped or locked in in this kind of uh, hall of mirrors of the past. Uh, you know, Max is one of them because he preserves these films that no one wants to watch. He says no one has the equipment to screen these anymore. There was a great moment of emergent. Uh, physical comedy and meta-textual mm -hmm. comedy with this because when I started watching um, this film at the Picturehouse Central the framing was off so it's so terrible I was in a different screening but yeah, yeah, yeah. more on that later so I so I was there so basically I was there and it meant that half the subtitles were cut off on the film so they had to reset and start again it was you know very embarrassing for the did you get past the film within a film no uh, okay so nice, we kind of nice, relived nice. it again it was oh, quite wow. interesting we weren't aware yet well, but then the funny actually. thing is Max later on says this thing in a, he makes a joke where he's like, oh, well, you know, no one's got the equipment to screen these films anymore. And when they do, you know, they never get the framing right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just everyone in the room just like laughing at. But it's kind of, it's great. It's this very, you know, that also obviously wasn't planned, but it's, it, the film manages to be so truthy um, mm. that it can kind of anticipate. It's very self-aware and it's very aware of the, and it's really surprising to see someone who's 81, who's able to so fleet-flittedly switch between 
uh, registers in this kind of quite tabular way. Um, you know, particularly his evocation of this unsolved cases. Uh, you know, it's really bold choice to start a film in this uh, gauzy, grainy, soft, buttery film. Yeah. And then to switch into this like Netflix style yeah. cold office block, you know, and it's actually shot yeah. for that, for those sort of portions relating to um, the unsolved cases. It's actually shot quite flat and he's yeah. he, kind of ugly almost. And it's filmed it's like, like they filmed yeah. the TV show where he's interviewed and they filmed the interview almost in. It feels like it's in it in its entirety. Yeah, it's got that kind of daytime TV, it, yeah, hyper reality. They have like an know. LED screen behind, and every, mm. everything is yeah too sharp. Exactly. Yeah, it, we it just enters have something that very zone. soft, which is the past, because it's memory, and we have the present, which is harsh and real. It's also compositionally just so on it. I mean, every yeah, yeah, shot yeah. has like something beautiful going on in the background. There is like a bit too much rain. It keeps raining all the time, which mm. I don't know. I, I just assume it doesn't rain that much in Spain, but whatever. The, the rain, rain in Spain, Spain stays <laughs> mainly <laughs> in the frame. Yeah, uh, in, in but in I mean, everything, and we get little. We get little kind of digressions. We, we, he believes he knows what's happened to this actor about how he went missing, and he kind of confects this. This again is another film within a film, really, which is this kind of reflection on how he might have um, staged his suicide because a pair of shoes were found by the side of a cliff, um, right, and right, his right. coat, presumably with his identity papers in it. Um, yeah, there is this scene where where his his last moments, as it were, are kind of restaged. Yeah, and it's like that. I think that's just about comes off. Yeah, yeah, I was just slightly like, oh, this breaks the rule, but actually, I, I no, was, I think I it's good because it. it is. It's a reverie and it's an imagination. It's an amazing well. face. Really, there is something face, great, like very yeah. truthy, truthy about how like mm. the actor's face is like somewhat more interesting than the director's face, mm. which is like a classic thing that directors and actors often like. Like the director, uh, you get it even with like. Um, was this Shiva Baby? The director mm. of Shiva Baby is like a less interesting looking Rachel Sennett. Like, you know, like almost <laughs> yeah. every, like Herzog and Kinski, like every. Yeah, and they were rivals. Like for uh, this woman's Truffaut, love. Truffaut, and actually Truffaut is pretty handsome, but yeah, Truffaut yeah, yeah. and Jean Pilet, like the director mm. is always like channeling the, their spirit into someone with a really with striking face. Yeah. yeah. And I think Rizage. so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they um, do have, the, the, you know, in, in some ways they are they are best friends, but they're also uh, rivals. Rivals. Love rivals. Love yeah. rivals and they're creative rivals. And they're also, there's all resentment there as well because, you know, what was this man really, who was he running from? Uh, and this, obviously, by the same measure, this, this, by disappearing, this actor, so the director believes, has sort of ruined his chances to have a really strong cinematic career. He never yeah. made a film again, um, you know. But it shows how interdependent he was with this other person, how symbiotic, in a way, and their disappearance yeah. was horrible. Him horrible sense of missed sort of, mm. you know, if if only we shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a real sense of the tantalizing sense mm. that the film within the film is so much more like profound and noble and beautiful than what mm. you're watching and yet the way that what you're watching for most of the film situates the film is mm. part of the effect of it it has this very tantalizing recontextualizing power all of that bit in the middle even though a lot of it is quite i mean it's a long film it's basically three hours mm. um and it, it does it does spend a lot of the a lot of time just with these people slowly unpacking the past which mm. i normally wouldn't recommend a three-hour film to you know because you know a lot of it uh, become quite heavy you know sodden i think but it doesn't hit because it, it's so fresh and how he switches up the the register exactly um, and, you know even with and it has a very s satisfying yet ambiguous so uh spoiler alert for anyone mm -hmm. that wants to watch this film and enjoy it and it's uh, untrammeled uh beauty so at the end of the film we get a screening so another yeah. film within a film um, so this is his second attempt to to, to somehow find in this prompt. in this actor yeah 
some like something that proves that he is who he was yep. before he lost his So memory. he arranges for a film celluloid screening mm. of the uh, surviving prints of this film, of the reels that, uh, that uh, Max were shot. Preferred, yeah, preferred method. We have no digitalization here. We're going to yeah. screen it for real. And they go into a sort of, it's like a Simon Lang, Goodbye Dragon Inn kind yeah, of Yeah, dilapidated old Kino house yeah, that's yeah, been... Yeah shut it up for yeah. years and then they kind of it's kind of again the gang gets back together it's a real kind yeah. of uh you know sort of um the woman from the tv show shows up everyone yeah, kind everyone's of there all up. those people all the these daughter. various people well they're the ghosts of the past yeah. in some ways and you might say these people are just the memories that are gathering mm. of this person's life you know it's who do you think it's mark parkinson or something it's, yeah but they gather in this in this room to screen the film um you know again that is something that Featured prominently in Spirit of the Beehive, this, this screening of um, Elsa as well that mm. revolves around a, a kind of cinema, mm. someone who goes to a cinema. To, I can't, I haven't seen it for a while, but some mm. character goes to the cinema to kind of cover up something else. That, like the, the, the child <laughs> follows the person into the cinema. The, the cinema pre- plays like a role as a sort of mm. as a bit and as an abyss in which things are kind of like secrets are hidden. Yeah, um, and it's, this is it. It's, it's a space of quite. It's a space of intense magic and, yeah, and, yeah. and speculation. And the film and is shown quite cleverly. The film, the plot of the film within the film revolves around. Uh, you can like easily pass how only these two fragments, the beginning and end, remain of the film because they would they're shot in the same location. Mm. But you you but the middle section of the film uh, is not. It was never shot because of this disappearance mm. at this particular point. So yeah, you see this. You, you see at the beginning of the film, the beginning of the film, and then at the end of the film, you see the end of the film. Uh, and you, and it makes sense why there are only these fragments of the film exist. It, exactly. So it's, it's kind of narratively cogent within yeah, its yeah. own world. And I think so. We get this screening of the film, and we see this final scene, which we've not seen yet. Yeah. Um. So we're also seeing it for the first time, and uh, it's a very strange film in some senses. This, this was this. Can yeah. I just can I just uh, sh- overshadow this with my opinion? Um, Always as a podcast. <laughs> <to the> point. <laughs> I thought this was just the most astonishing five minutes of film that i saw in the whole festival yeah 100 percent. I, th- I just I, I i had tears in my eyes tears in my eyes they were formal tears <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen i, I was, was so crying happy. <laughs> at how beautiful the filmmaking was, was also like, thank you also there was th- i mean it was an emotional topic it was there's like various forms yeah, it was, it of was like, very sentimental but and, and to watch shocky, but in yeah a good way, but it, to, so it combined like mm. the effect of yeah it was like a sort of somewhat schlocky film that in its context reached profundity through its like melodrama mm. and also you're watching someone kind of black well you're watching several people blankly well in one case blankly receiving or you're not quite sure ambiguously receiving what you what's being shown so there's like a kind of restrained version of what's happening on screen of mm. this like reuniting or possible discovery of a face of the farewell gaze and then there's this like very over the top melodramatic cinematic rendition of it the two are combined in this extraordinary collage interlaced imbricated concertinas uh accordion it was it was was just phenomenal and i and i and i was yeah so so magnetic that in that film like it it really earned that 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 kind of payoff that coup de gras i think there was something at that point it enabled this situation, this world that it created to live forever. It was like a sort of tuning fork that just doesn't stop ringing almost. It was like, ding, it set this thing up. Because at the end, you know, it didn't go for the neat ending, which is, oh, I remember who I am. What the fuck have I been? And it didn't do, no, sorry, I don't remember. We just see him, and again, beautiful bit of neatness, close close his eyes. 
I will say as, as, as focused as, on his face and he closes his eyes. As a critic, you mm. do have these and I don't know if normal people have this. Mm. <laughs> normal normal film spectators have this. Uh, Sally Rooney is all but uh, yeah. But like like because I think we have such a kind of such a clear and often quite dogmatic idea of what films should and shouldn't do. Oh, sorry about that. There is like um, there are moments where like you're you're w- worrying. I had this very much with how to have sex, <laughs> yeah, you and with zone of interest actually, yeah. where you're like you think, oh please don't do this, or like this film mm. would be perfect as long as you don't then do that, or you know like you're sort of predicting what like the film could do wrong, oh, and then God. you have this extraordinary catharsis when the film does exactly do you know what the I was right doing? thing, do you or know does something you hadn't thought of. What I was doing when that was happening, I literally had my like. I was like, literally had my hands squeezes around my leg and I was like, don't do it. I was like, yeah, leaning forward like, in my chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, don't fucking do it. Don't fucking do it. Don't yeah, fucking do it. Just like the end the film he here. Of end the film here. End the film here. He did it exactly perfectly. What he does, he does it like, perfectly. It was such a relief. And it fades well. down and then the title card, which you actually haven't seen in, you know, in the no, film. No, no, the no. title card you see at the beginning is the title card for the film within a film. And then the actual film ends and then close your eyes and the credits. Very beautiful music. And it reaches an extraordinary crescendo. Yeah, the last thing we see is his face. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's it's almost like a death mask in yeah, some yeah. senses, and it's like it works like it it functions operates whatever so many simultaneous levels and does all of them well. Um, mm. You know, as a, as a coda to a career, as a as the beginning, it's an Ouroboros with his filmmaking. You know, it takes us right back to the spirit of the Beehive. Um, you know, it it. it does all the great things about it. it acknowledges, like I said earlier, the kind of inherent trickery and magic of film. Yeah. Whilst at the same time, you know, speaking to the this kind of galvanized, strange substance that film is, you know, beyond yeah. beyond the gelatin. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, it kind of had me thinking about you know this 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 Henry James thing about Tolstoy about mm-hmm. these these big big novels, these big important interesting uh, novels, and he talks about those baggy monsters. Yeah. You know these kind of queers. He calls them strange. Um, uh, beings that kind of thrash around and sometimes kind of stumble and step and they're very, you know, um, thorny and strange and faceted. And that's kind of what he's created here. It is a loose and baggy monster, as Henry James says. But it's like such a delight. And I think my excitement about watching it was like, sometimes I sit there and I watch, I look at all the films I love, yeah. like really, really love, you know. Yeah. I think... Fuck! What if no one makes films like this anymore? What if mm. that is gone and we yeah, just yeah. have like okay films for the rest of the time? That's just a really traumatic thought. And then you see a film like this, and you're like, no, fuck! That's it's still possible to make yeah, a film yeah, yeah. that is is as good as you know, um, Tarkovsky or yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, can what still do that. But what I actually thought was interesting, and it made me mm. like reassess or reaffirm our conversation in the last episode about how so much young indie film is sort of about filmmaking and. And the, the not that I have an issue with this because I like all yeah. those all the films that we talked about, but um, but that it was interesting that the stuff I was really getting energy from did have this self-reflexive quality. Yeah. Um, but I didn't expect an eighty-four-year-old <laughs> no. uh, Spanish filmmaker to also deliver this kind of uh, deliver something which, yeah, it it, it was it was at a absolutely uh, on uh, on par with with some of the greats of the twentieth century, but it was also um very different and very contemporary so extremely and contemporary very, yeah. yeah yeah not afraid of its its comp- contemporaneity you know other films might have you know it wouldn't this film wouldn't have worked if it was all shot like the um uh th- this kind of bracketing film this this, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this older film if it was all shot in film and i thought it was, I was so 
taken aback in a way when we switched into digital, yeah. like flat digital. And I was like, but at the same time, I was like, no, this crazy old bastard. That's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. correct. This is perfect. This is like, you know, he can he can use these and perfect these different forms really well. It made me think of Quinstry's son in some mm -hmm. senses, you know, because the, the, the real thing about that, the most interesting thing is not this old artist rattling on. <laughs> it's the method of how he's painting this Quinstry. Right. You know, he paints it over a summer. And as the Quinstry sort of begins to die a bit over the summer, he obviously has to kind of try and remember where all the quince fruit on this tree mm -hmm. were. So he paints these little white lines on the on the fruit so he mm -hmm. can kind of tell how far they've dipped each yeah. day. But by the end of the painting, there's the painting in on his pad. Mm -hmm. And then there's all these quince fruit that have got all these white lines on them so you can see how much the tree's been dipping and yeah. decaying. And again, there's this amazing sense of the film is doing that. It's showing mm -hmm. itself. It's showing its trickery and its workings. It's workings out. Yeah, it, it exists in two separate places or three separate places. Simultaneously, he's the most smart filmmaker, or one of the most smart filmmakers working today, and he's only barely working today because he's only released one film in the last thirty years. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and I don't. I, know mean, I don't think there are other filmmakers. No, there are. There are lots of so lots of great smart. filmmakers. Um, working today i think mm. um, no there are i'm not denying there aren't great filmmakers but it feels like the one that's most in command of the whole toolkit yeah there was I a think. real sense of mastery at mm. that screening and it, but it kind of it was funny because i think yeah lots of the central section um mm. uh it filled me with great anticipation i mean i didn't check i didn't check the time once you know i was absolutely mm, wrapped but it did have like this real like like glacial like it was quite yeah they're quite literary you're really uncovering things slowly like not quite sure where it's going and then it kind of like really slots into this it uses like quite expert and it's not kind of gimmickry at all but it really slots into this like that final five minutes is just an absolute masterclass and i don't think mm. you'd feel what you feel with that if you didn't see the first two and a half hours but um no it's it's weird because it's like the, the the great power of that film is i know we're really really gassing this up uh but it deserves it but you know it's like you know in that last um serge danny his last, you know, last piece for Cahir um, writes, uh, he was talking about the films of our childhood that watched us. Uh -huh. He's talking about this capacity for film to watch us, you know, because it's sort of activating sublimated memories and uh, sort of penetrating beyond our, our consciousness into our subconsciousness. Mm -hmm. But also the unsettling thing when you're in front of a great film like this, where you do feel a little bit uneasy before it, in a mm -hmm. way, you know, and that's the capacity of really, really great cinema, I think, is to feel kind of observed rather mm. than just to feel like a spectator. And I think yeah. this film does that. It's doing stuff to you, mm. which is interesting. And it's kind of getting itself into your head in really interesting ways. It's so good. Um, definitely feels like a film like, I don't know, it, it's, a, it's a cinema film. This is one you go Yeah, go, go yeah. see it in the cinema. It's released yeah. by New Wave Films again, like Totem. Mm. Uh, not quite the same urgency to see it on opening weekend because Aretha mm. is not a... Uh, kind of up and coming spring chicken <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, uh, definitely go see it um, 100% yeah and so, so you want to talk about Pedro Costa one about, final yeah, thing yeah, I should yeah. say and I'll keep it brief um, because the film itself is brief it would be a bit of a crime to talk about this film for longer than the film itself actually lasts mm. it is a nine minute film called Daughters of the Fire Pedro Costa I think absolutely a filmmaker deserving of his own return to form episode maybe we'll do that at some point I'm kind of uh, running through a lot of the greats mm, so I watched Force yeah. Money the other night um, you know he is he is a very unconventional filmmaker almost mm. an eccentric it was great to see him in discussion with Victoria Lutre at the ICA that um, I mean his, their films were in discussion the previous night 
is where I saw them both at the London Film Festival. The following day, they had this uh, this very kind of awkward. Uh, they sort of opened the talk by saying, uh, like, saying, "Oh, it's difficult when filmmakers talk to each other," and and um, you know, re recounting the funny stories about how Ingmar Bergman, whenever he met Tarkovsky or whatever, and they just wouldn't say anything because he, you know, felt so self-conscious. So filmmakers who admire each other when they hang out sometimes it's not uh, quite as sort of riveting as a, as a podcast. But they said they both said very profound things about the state of cinema. They both talked a lot about the preciousness of images and not, you know, over overusing. I mean. Some of it, I think, almost slipped into kind of boomer uh, attention economy chat, uh, and perhaps I fall on the more Godardian kind of collage image book approach. But I found their I found their insights and wisdom uh, very uh, very engaging and affirming. Um, Pedro Costa, if you don't know who Pedro Costa is, he's a Portuguese filmmaker who, early on in his career, settled on a particular community of people in a sort of slum adjacent sort of on the outskirts of Lisbon uh in his film Colossal Youth the kind of transition from that slum to uh more uh it becomes sort of rationalized yeah more cleaned up more kind of uh new build new newly built dwellings uh kind mm. of occurs this is the community of Fontainehash Fontainehash as well yeah. yes exactly uh and then Yes, you see that. So they're displaced and then dispersed, but he still follows these people. And uh, Daughters of the Fire is a musical. It takes on a triptych form. Fuck it, off. It is. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it? Okay. Um, well, the thing we've got to remember about Tejo Kashi, it probably is what I should have said at the top line, is that he loves Hollywood. He loves excess. His lighting is always very expressive uh and he likes to work with high contrast he likes to be very deliberate and and also likes to separate things in the frame uh, and compose images almost like there's a kind of mechanicalness in the in the way that bresson uses the edit i feel Pedro Costa he's uses, very rembrandtian I yeah think, uses yeah. paint uses light and is yeah exactly mm. like a painter uh but in such a way there's such deep blacks that you that things that pop out like someone's cheek or or kind of a, a reflection of, of a light or something in the, on the wall, kind of independently of each other, kind of stand out. So appreciated this hugely. Um, yes, it's a musical. It features three women in three different uh, frames singing about their um, about their pain. Essentially, I believe the music is Bach. It's, it's an accompaniment to Bach and um, operatic accompaniment. Uh, an aria, yeah, yeah, an aria, yeah. yeah. I think it's an aria. I don't know, but it's very good. Mm. It made me very inspired and excited. Mm. I obviously immediately then watched Close Your Eyes. So I mean, it was nine minutes. It was very short. Oh, was it? So it was. Uh, it was like a, a double little, bill. Uh, at a moose bouche before. Yes. Yeah. Well, it is. It's a proof of concept for a feature that he wants to make. So the mm. idea is the next Pedro got to the feature will be a musical. It will be made possibly in this triptych format. The color is extremely rich. Um, it did look. It, it felt a bit like being in a church and looking at kind of three very rich, um, colorful stained glasses. Um, yeah, the, it's very iconographic imagery. It's it's from what I can tell, what I assume of uh, Kostya's work. It is once again about people from this community. Mm. It's uh, I think what he said in the introduction if I'm not mistaken, broadly, he was saying, you know, the situation of these people has gotten worse. Um, and to totally, ca beautifully, brilliantly counterintuitive, counter to the absurd 
rationalism of our social realist directors like Loach, mm. um, he said that the the plight the 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 more extreme the plight, basically the the bolder and more like ambitious and fantastic, almost fantastical the the way I depict this mm. should be. So it's sort of filmed. It's filmed sort of on like exploding lava almost. It looked like there's a oh, wow. on a mountain. I, I assume this is like reminiscent of the Cap Cabo Verde. Making mountain. me thinking of uh making me thinking. Making makes yeah, me think of like, yeah, of uh sort of Gaspar Noe's treatment with with uh Luxa Turner. Luxa Turner, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually it is a bit like that. Yeah, yeah, it has it has this quality. It's quite a hypnotic, kind of like a hyper poppy, vibrant film, yeah. you know, in its own way. And there is a final section which is just one channel which is just Mm. Sort of celluloid footage of, um, of Cape Verde, which I wasn't like as, but it was like an important respite after this very charged mm. uh, triptych se section, which really has the eyes dancing around. I like this kind of symphonic approach to filmmaking. Actually, you know, there's Absolutely. you know this this idea. You know, if you're if you're listening to a symphony, you do get rest and you do yeah. get you know moments of lower energy, and it's think there's no reason why films shouldn't treat you the same thing. If and you're Costa really always has. I mean, yeah. his horse horse money. I was watching <laughs> last night. I was like doing the, the when I said horse, I was like doing the shh thing because that's mm. all the Portuguese horse horse money. Because mm. I keep I'm trying to say Costa, not um, Costa, like the yeah. coffee coffee brand. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, it's uh, horse money has the same quality of of really going through movements, and you, mm. you sort of arrive in a pleasure Costa film. You arrive at a movement. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be here for a while. Mm. Some stuff is going to happen, and then you're like, then you move on to the next thing, and it's it's. Uh, it, it's a beautiful way to make films and uh, yeah. mm. I hope he lives at least as long as Elisa has lived and I hope he makes more films than... <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's, oh, he's already made sure. more films than Victor Elisa. But, yes, but yeah, he did yeah. say a funny thing where mm. he said, oh, you know, he, he was paying tribute to Victor Elisa and he says, you know, he was like, you don't have to make uh, that many films, you know, there are already many films. Uh, Victor, you know, he's only made four but they are four brilliant films. <laughs> it's uh, true. Yeah, it's just true. Where is the lie? Mm. Very true. Uh, so, um, yes, I don't know where people will get the opportunity to see Daughters of the Fire because I it's only nine online minutes. So, I guess it will find its way yeah, online. It would be a movie or something. Actually. Yeah, it would be good to see it on me eventually. Um, but, yes, great yeah. film. Just an exciting trailer almost for... Uh, it's funny, he, he made a very rude comment about the BFI trailer that screened before the screening. He was like, I don't... I." Thank you to the BFI. I don't want to say this, but the trailer is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. I I've only yeah. uh, I was only went to one public screening during the festival. It's <laughs> 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 just loads of like fast clips. It kind of yeah. has a funny like momentum to it, but it just. I so, think all of so these festival trailers. It's probably worthwhile. Yeah. Someone at some point studying the kind of the emergent genre of the kind of the festival, festival trailer is yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of hype piece to. The just festival. ripping the richness out of like a mm. hundred different clips from films yep. that happen to be showing at the same festival. Whilst celebrating, saying something about this host city yeah, and saying yeah. something about the institution that's graciously funding the, oh, uh, yeah, the that, activities. That um, but it's raw propaganda. It is. Mm. But I mean, that being said, you know, we've had actually a very spirited and very successful LFF. We have. We saw so much. We've enjoyed ourselves um, greatly. Um, and uh, yeah, our next stop as a podcast, is probably to talk about directors again, as we normally do. Well, Jean Ustache. 
John Moustache. John Moustache. We need to go back to John Moustache because we saw the mother in the hall relatively recently before the memory of that face. Yeah, yeah, the beer fight season. To, uh, I might have to watch it again. Yeah, um, well, you, yeah, it'll come back to you. It will. Uh, yes, we might do a season on him and we might do a season on Petra Kostya, as just previously oh, mentioned by me. Yeah. Um, but yes, we've already been running for a very long time. So yes, good yeah. festival. Yeah, good festival. Thank you for joining us for this uh, trilogy and probably like five hours of, of yeah, true. collective conversation. For but you know, if you enjoy, if you need to fall asleep to a podcast, you know, this is... Yeah, I think we're pretty good for that. This is the one. We don't suddenly start shouting at any point. So. Apart from we get very excited about a film, yeah. which isn't that often. So it's, uh, well, I think we yeah. talked quite... Positively. We loved several of the films we saw. Bad, this, uh, yeah. bad news for people who say mm. about this podcast: <laughs> just love it when you hate something. Just <laughs> don't worry, we'll do we'll do some shit soon. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll do, the, do the fan service of uh, generally, yeah. you know, optimists. Yeah, always. Yeah, Will I die. Gotta be. Um, as as James Borden says, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. On that note, uh, bonne nuit. Um, Thank you for joining us and yeah. See you later. See you later.